This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia. Good evening to you, wherever you might be. You are listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, 
and music of the world. It's more than radio. It is community radio, and it's also the home for Radio Orbit, and that's what you're listening to right now. This is Mike Hagan. I'm your host every Saturday night, Sunday morning from uh, 2 o'clock in the morning until 5 o'clock. And uh, here we are tonight. It is uh, December. December 5th, first, uh, first show we've done in December ever. So uh, welcome to December. Hope you all had a, uh, a good uh, Thanksgiving last weekend. If you uh, celebrate that particular holiday, did a uh, sort of a replay show, uh, sort of a seat of our pants show last week. Did a repeat of uh, an interview with Dennis McKenna that we did a few weeks ago and just kind of uh, winged it a little bit. Didn't have a whole lot planned, but this week we've got an exciting show for you all. Interesting stuff tonight. We're going to be talking to, uh, actually, I'll be airing an interview that I did a couple of weeks ago with a gentleman whose name is William Lyne. And uh, William Lyne is a, a gentleman who's written a number of books over the last 30 years or so, um, primarily dealing with uh, the term that we call ether physics and uh, some of the things that are associated with ether physics or implications of ether physics. Uh, are possibilities, technological possibilities that uh, typically don't get discussed or uh, talked about much. And uh, in fact, the general idea of uh, some of these things, the general perception of some of the things we'll be talking about tonight is that they are farcical and uh, do not exist. Uh, but uh, ether physics changes a lot of things compared to relativist, uh, relativistic physics, uh, Einsteinian, Newtonian physics. So uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be discussing that with William Lyon in just about 50 minutes, 45 minutes or so. We'll start that interview. Before then, uh, I've got a few stories to talk to you about. We'll do space weather, and uh, I don't know what else we'll do. talk about lots of things, as we always do on Radio Orbit. I had uh, want to mention real fast here... Uh, and a quick thank you to the folks over at the Blue Note and uh, Mojo's Richard King over there doing a great job. I saw a, uh, a show on Wednesday night over at Mojo's. The band was called Bohola, and they're an Irish Celtic uh, a threesome trio. Oh, man, incredible stuff. Incredibly talented musicians. And uh, I just want to say thanks uh, to all the people over here at KOPN and also at uh, uh, the Blue Note and Mojo. Some, we've been doing quite a few shows over the last few months, starting to uh, increase uh, the relationship we have with some of the music venues here in town. <clears throat> but uh, I've been attending some of those shows and getting to know some of the people down there at the Blue Note and at Mojo's and a real, bunch of really cool people. And uh, really glad to see the collaboration. And uh, there's been some fantastic performances over the last few months that I've been lucky enough to, uh, uh, to, get, to, uh, to get to watch. So uh, so that's going on. That Bohola show was great. I think tonight was uh, Anson Funderburg and the Rockets, a good old uh, classic blues show, sort of old school blues down at Mojo. So anybody that was down there, I hope you had a good time. Things kind of relaxed in Columbia this evening. It's always interesting driving in here on a Saturday night. I come in about 1 o'clock or so and get uh, take about an hour to prepare for the show, but uh, usually that's sort of hopping time in downtown Columbia. And tonight actually was kind of mellow out there. It didn't seem like there was a whole lot going on, so... Maybe you're all sitting at home trying to stay warm and uh, and listen to Radio Orbit. So hopefully that is the case. And um, <clears throat> uh, we'll, uh, I don't know what else. Let's see. What do I want to talk about? Oh, emails. Um, 
Thank you uh, for the real nice emails. I've gotten a couple of real nice uh, notes over the last couple of weeks, and uh, uh, I appreciate it. Hello to everybody listening over the web. Uh, thanks to Dave. Uh, Dave called in last week. Uh, he got himself a, a CD-ROM, the entire archive of cyberspaceorbit.com. Really valuable stuff and uh, really incredible uh, information on that disc. I'll be giving another one of those away tonight, along with a... Um, uh, Fate Magazine t-shirt. I think I've got that to give away a little bit later. Uh, upcoming guests, like I said tonight, we've got uh, William Line talking about ether technology, ether physics, anti-gravity technology, this sort of thing. Nikola Tesla being uh, uh, a main... Um, uh, one of the uh, one of the main personalities involved in the stuff that we'll be talking about tonight. Uh, if you're not familiar with Tesla, he was a, an amazing scientist that uh, did a, a huge, a huge, huge library of work uh, that uh, began back in the late 1800s and continued uh, through 1930 or so. And uh, anyway, an interesting story of Nikola Tesla. We'll be talking about that tonight as well. And um, uh, Next week, I'm not sure what we're going to do next week. We might do a live show with uh, Scott Stevens. He's that meteorologist that I've been telling you about. He's a weatherman in uh, Seattle and uh, a guy that is now uh, on the record and out front in the mainstream media uh, talking about scalar technologies and uh, weather manipulation and uh, this sort of thing. This guy's a, a weatherman who's on the television in Seattle every night, and um, he's a very well-known uh, a well-known television personality in the Pacific Northwest and uh, also a meteorologist. And for a guy like him to be talking about these things, uh, uh, for, number one, it's interesting that he still has a job, uh, but uh, but uh, he's also uh, uh, got a lot of courage. So we'll be talking to Scott Stevens on the air maybe next week if I set that up. I'm not sure. If we do that, Kent Stedman will probably be on the air with us from cyberspaceorbit.com. Uh, Kent is... Uh, uh, lives up there in the Seattle area, and he's familiar with Scott. In fact, he's the guy that originally uh, hooked us up. So might do a little three-way conversation with Kent and Scott Stevens next weekend, uh, or we might not. I might just do the show by myself. We'll have to see. We've got uh, Dr. Paul LaViolette coming up in the next uh, couple of weeks. Might uh, might actually air that after Christmas, after the beginning of the year, because it's an, it's an interview that's really important, and it's one that, uh, uh, that I want... Um, as many people to hear as possible, so we might wait till after the holidays are over for that, where people have a little bit better concentration, a little bit better focus. So, uh, Paul uh, Laviolette, uh, Dr. Paul Laviolette, that'll be coming up in a few weeks. Sean Montgomery will be talking about Royal Raymond Rife, an incredible medical genius from the early 1900s. Rupert Sheldrake, uh, anybody who's familiar with consciousness studies, morphogenetics, morpho. Um, Morphogenetic field theory, this sort of thing. Uh, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake from Cambridge University in the United Kingdom. We'll be talking to him uh, from London. And uh, uh, Rupert Sheldrake, again, an icon in these fields, somebody who's been uh, um, uh, a buzzword for, for many, many years now and uh, uh, did some great collaborative work with one of my heroes, Terrence McKenna and uh, Ralph Abrams, uh, or Ab well, Ralph Abraham, I take that back, uh, a few years ago. So anyway, we'll be talking to those guys coming up. Nick Cook, again, uh, um, talking, to, uh, talking to Nick about anti-gravity technology and the history of this sort of thing. Uh, Nick Cook is uh, the former... For about 15 years, he was the aerospace editor for Jane's Defense Weekly. And again, if you're familiar with the military intelligence technological uh, field and the journals involved in that field, Jane's Defense Weekly is the preeminent uh, journal 
a magazine for intelligence professionals who are interested in military technology. Now, Nick Cook is an insider in the aerospace industry. He's got he's got friends at all of the major manufacturers. He knows uh, uh, he knows the history of aerospace in the United States and in Germany and in Russia um, better than well, better than uh, certainly better than most. Uh, so this idea of um, alternative energy and ether physics and new ideas of and models of physics and astrophysics and cosmology all this stuff is uh, are things we're going to be talking about over the next couple months i've had a uh, had a little thorn in my side regarding energy uh, over the last couple months because of sort of the state uh, the state of the planet in general is kind of um, appears that we're sort of reaching a tipping point and uh, i want to do anything that i can do to help facilitate that not happening and uh, the main thing that we need to do as a global society in my opinion and as a species is um, number one develop new technologies and new energy technologies but number two uh, release the technologies that have already been developed and that have been um, that have exist, uh, existed for a long time and let's clear up the water Let's clear up the water, okay? If people disagree with this stuff, uh, if you think that it's impossible or that it doesn't agree with your particular paradigm or your particular model of physics, well, those are things that need to be hashed out and discussed, uh, not just discounted and thrown away out of hand because there is a lot of debate about this right now. And if these things do exist and if these, energies, uh, these energy technologies are available and are currently in play, just kept under the umbrella of national security and things like that, well... Now is the time. That stuff needs to be released. It needs to be brought into the public sector, and uh, uh, people need to start benefiting from it um, as opposed to uh, it being used to, to, for control and to keep, to keep things under wraps. So, so we're going to be talking about that a lot over the next couple months, and I'm going to be talking to a lot of different people uh, about it. Tonight, William Line, uh, Bill Line, is one of those guys. Uh, Dr. Paul LaViolette, I mentioned him a little bit earlier. He touches on a lot of uh, a lot of this stuff uh, believe it or not michael heisen when we were talking about dolphins and orcas uh the, the there are connections there as well and then we're going to finish things up with nick cook uh, nick cook in january because he is as i say uh, somebody who can't be poo-pooed he's got all the right credentials he's got all the right letters at the end of his name and uh he's had uh, an incredibly successful career in the aerospace industry and um if you're going to discount what nick cook says well, then, uh, then we probably don't have anything else to talk about because you're probably just not ready to listen. So, anyway, <clears throat> uh, that's about it. So, uh, give me a call here at the station. The number is 874-5676. That's uh, area code 573. Also, if you're outside of that area code, you can call us at 800-895-5676. And uh, my email address, as always, uh, orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com. Send me an email. Always interested in your questions and concerns and ideas for new shows and all that sort of stuff. So uh, anytime tonight, give me a buzz. Uh, actually, uh, wait till we get that interview going if you want to call in the station. And I'll, uh, uh, in a little while here, I'll um, open up the phone line and uh, let somebody call in and get a copy of that CD-ROM that I mentioned or, or, a, or a T-shirt or something like that, okay? All right. It is about uh, 20 after, about 18 after, and... Uh, put on a little bit of music here and come back and do space weather and uh, talk about a few other things. So this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. It's about 2.20 and we'll be back in a minute. William Line in about 45 minutes before that. Space weather and some interesting stories. I'll be back in a minute. This is Dada on Radio Orbit. Uh-huh. 
Dada from American Highway Flower, a song called Feet to the Sun. Speaking of having our feet to the sun, as we speak, a coronal mass ejection is hurling its way from our stellar neighbor cruising through space and about ready to smash into the atmosphere of planet Earth. That is actually true. We had a big M-class flare uh, a couple of days ago, and we are literally right now starting to feel the effects. In fact, if you're in the uh, northern latitudes, it's too bad you can't hear me right now. Um, if we were streaming over the net, you would be able to, and you could look out your window and you'd probably see some incredible aurora activity right now if you're in any of the higher latitudes because uh, there was a pretty significant coronal mass ejection that was uh, 
the result of a big M-class flare that occurred a couple days ago. And uh, we're watching the sun pretty closely now. That can affect, as we know, communications and shortwave. Uh, shortwave operators always are talking about... Uh, it's interesting because shortwave guys are some of the most uh, educated people on the planet when it comes to solar phenomenon because the solar phenomenon affect their hobby so uh, uh, so so directly. So anyway, the shortwave guy's not very happy right now. The sun's messing up with their fun, and uh, there are uh, quite a bit of uh, there's quite a bit of activity. We have a couple of big sunspot areas on the front part of the disc right now, and so we'll be watching those because anytime anytime those big coronal holes and sunspot areas are uh, are floating around the front side of what we call the fa- the earth facing disk of the sun well then we have situations where uh, where we could have uh, solar phenomenon that do affect the earth so that's happening right now and uh, even in uh, some of the lower latitudes you might even get some uh, some reasonable aurora activity if you look out um, <clears throat> look out toward the uh, toward the north so uh, so check that out. That'll be going on for the next couple of days, and uh, we'll have to keep our eye on the sun. If uh, if anybody's interested in looking at the solar data and solar imagery uh, for themselves, uh, you can go to my website at www.radioorbit.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com. Just one O in the middle there. And um, I've got links up there to uh, Kent Stedman's uh, website over there, cyberspaceorbit.com. Kent covers the sun about as well as anybody on the net and uh, uh, if you're interested in this stuff all of these links and um, all kinds of other information over there at Kent's website so go over to cyberspaceorbit.com if you don't want to go there just go to one of your search engines and uh, put in uh, uh, SOHO S-O-H-O and uh, that's short for Solar Observational and Heliospheric Observatory and uh, that is the one of the main satellites that cruises around up there and uh, 24/7 and just keeps an eye on uh, on our star. So if you're interested in that stuff, it's all available and you can go check it out on the web. Okay. Uh, let's see. Tuesday coming up, there will be what we call a lunar occultation on uh, December 7th, just a little little ways before sunrise. Um, there will be sort of a crescent moon and uh, it will eclipse Jupiter. And when we that when when that happens, we call it an occultation. And uh, uh, in fact, in this case, I'll call it a lunar occultation, but you can have lots of different t- uh, types of astro- astronomical uh, occultations. And if you live in the eastern two-thirds of our country, you'll be able to see that. You just have to get up, oh, maybe an hour or so before uh, before dawn and um, look down to the southeast, and uh, you'll be able to see a really beautiful display between the moon and Jupiter. Now, the word occultation is based on the word occult, and, uh, of course, we hear the word occult these days, and lots of people are quick to jump the gun and think that we're talking about Satanism and uh, all kinds of uh, different ideas of nastiness, typically. But uh, the word occult simply means hidden or secret. And uh, the reason we talk about astronomical occultations is because one particular body will pass in front of another one, hiding it or uh, occulting it from our view. And that's uh, sort of the basis of that word. It's just something that's hidden. So typically when we talk about occult knowledge and occult information, uh, this is stuff that usually is associated with secret or hidden ideas or secret schools or ancient teachings, things that have been either lost, hidden, or kept secret for some reason. So uh, occult information, per se, 
like most information, is neither good or bad or related to any particular topic. Um, it is uh, simply a way to describe something that's being hidden or kept secret. So keep that in mind when you hear that word occult, all right? Uh, all right, there's a little bit of linguistic uh, fun for you, okay? All right, the Geminid meteor shower. The Geminid meteors will be peaking in about a week around December 12th and 13th. Should be a pretty good display. The moon will be almost new, which is always nice when we have a uh, meteor shower. If we don't have a big bright moon up there, we get to see more of those uh, more of those rocks burning through our atmosphere. Uh, so the moon will be almost new uh, next week, and uh, the skies will be pretty dark. So should get to see hundreds and uh, dozens of pretty bright meteors. And uh, again, the reason these are called the Geminid meteors is because they, from our perspective, at least here on Earth, they appear to come from the constellation, from the direction at least, of the constellation Gemini. Uh, we had the Leonids, which came through a couple months ago, and of course the Leonids again named, all of these uh, meteor showers are named in the same uh, in the same methodology. The Leonids, of course, come from the, uh, from the direction of Leo, so that's why they call them Leonids. All right, we're just going to finish up here. I want to talk about uh, potentially hazardous asteroids. We had a pretty close call. Uh, actually, I take that back. We have a little bit of a close call coming up on the 8th. That's Wednesday. We've got a rock that's called 2004RZ-164, and that's going to do a pretty close flyby to Earth. And uh, let's hope that they got the orbitals right on that one and it doesn't make uh, make too close of a close of a shave to our little planet here. I was always... Uh, always interested in asteroid and comet impacts because obviously they are uh, things that <clears throat> significantly affect the future of the planet. So anyway, uh, usually the ones that we know about are not the ones to worry about. <laughs> it's usually the ones that we don't know about, the ones uh, that we have no idea are out there. There, uh, Quite frankly, who knows how many of these things are actually out there. They've, they've discovered some six, seven, eight hundred of them uh, that they call Earth crossers, and that basically means that an asteroid or a comet or whatever has uh, a particular orbit that uh, crosses the Earth's orbit. Now, it doesn't mean that the body itself uh, and the Earth will meet every time that the orbits cross, but it just means that uh, when the timing's right, if you think of a clock and you think about gears and uh, that sort of a conceptual idea, when the gears are right, when the clock, when, when, the, when the two circles meet at the right place, well, then the bodies will meet and they will come into contact, and that's when we have an impact scenario. Uh, but, uh, like I say, we've discovered six or seven hundred of these things, and uh, but there's really no way of knowing how many there are. We live in an infinite space, and uh, we live in a space that's always moving through space, uh, not really a static situation, a very dynamic situation. And uh, in those sorts of situations, anything can happen. So, uh, so there are certain rocks that we know about that we keep our eyes on, and there are other ones certainly that we do not know about, and those are the ones that we... Uh, that we can't really keep our eyes on and that we have to worry about a little bit. And again, there's no reason to worry about it because uh, what are you going to do? Huh? Put your baseball mitt on and catch it? I don't think so. So, All right. Okay, uh, let's see. We've got a half hour to go. I've got a few things I want to get in here. Um, there is a, uh, an event that is happening in Costa Rica that I want to mention to you all about just in case uh, somebody might get a wild hair or have the opportunity to be in uh, Central America or South America in the next couple months. A friend of mine whose name is Dahlia Miller, uh, she is a uh, um, an activist uh, who 
works in the rainforest in Costa Rica, and her son, his name is Jonathan Weissmiller, and uh, she has a daughter as well. But Jonathan, her son, is an ethnobotanist, a uh, Ph.D. ethnobotanist, and uh, uh, is has been living in uh, Costa Rica for uh, Costa Rica for a number of years and has a relationship with the indigenous people down there and they've started a uh, a retreat that's called Guardia de Osa and uh, it is basically a uh, uh, a place to go for a little vacation is a great way to describe it uh, but it would be a vacation that's a little bit different than uh, than ones that you've had in the past uh, this one uh, you'll be lucky enough to uh, share your time with guys like Jeremy Narby, uh, Stanford Ph.D. anthropologist uh, and biologist who talks about intelligence in nature, David Abram, a cultural ecologist and uh, philosopher, uh, Bartula Aguinda, Jonathan Miller-Weisberger, I mentioned, uh, Victor uh, Victoria Villarreal, um, some real big names in uh, this new and sort of growing um, uh, this growing field of ethnobotany and ethnopharmacology and uh, what these guys are all doing uh, without the big words is reattaching or reconnecting the human species with the natural world and uh, there is so much to talk about with regard to that uh, we could talk we could have many many shows on the, the connection to nature or the separation from nature that uh, human species has undergone over the last 5,000 years or so. But in any case, uh, some great, great, great people and great work being done down there in Costa Rica. And they are friends of mine, so I wanted to mention it. So if anybody is interested in this, uh, this particular event that's going to be going on from February 1st through the 8th at Guaria de Osa in Costa Rica, send me an email at... Uh, orbitradio at aol.com and I will give you all that information and uh, I'm going to try to get down there myself I don't know if I'm going to be able to go uh, I'm planning a trip to either go to Costa Rica and interview all those guys or go to Hawaii and do a live interview with uh, Dr. Heisen who we talked about a few weeks ago uh, who we talked to a few weeks ago uh, they both invited me and if I, can, uh, if I can come up with the resources to pull it off I'll go to one or the other and either way that'll, that'll, that'll result in a pretty pretty cool uh, one or two radio shows if we're able to do that so anyway Guaria de Oso um, and my friends uh, Jonathan Miller Weisberger doing a great thing down there so check that out you can also go to the web and uh, do a search on Jonathan Miller Weisberger and uh, you'll probably find that information okay all right here's a quick story from you this came from uh, the discovery uh, uh, the discovery website another Stonehenge found in Russia question mark November 17th Russian archaeologists have announced that they have found the remains of a 4,000-year-old structure that they compare to England's Stonehenge, according to recent reports issued by Pravda and Novosti, two Russian news services. If the comparison holds true, the findings suggest that both ancient European and Russian populations held similar pagan beliefs that wove celestial cycles with human and animal life. Now, this article goes on, and I'll read a little bit more of it, but uh, the most important sentence is the one that I just read. So I'm going to read it again. If the comparison holds true, the findings suggest that both ancient European and Russian populations held similar pagan beliefs that wove celestial cycles with human and animal life. Some devotional objects and symbols are at the Russian site in the region of Rizan. Their meanings might shed light on pagan ceremonies that likely also took place at Stonehenge. 
Just as the location of Stonehenge at Salisbury Plain in Wiltshire appeared to be significant for the megalith creators, so does the Ryazan for the Russian builders. The site overlooks the junction of two rivers, the Oka and the Pronya. It was highly traveled uh, by numerous cultures in ancient times. Uh, one of the lead archaeologists on the excavation and a researcher in the State History Museum of Russia uh, at the Department of Archaeological Monuments described the remains uh, of the structure to uh, the paper Novosti. This is what he says. Amadov said he and his team found ground holes indicating a monument with a 22.97-foot diameter circle consisting of 1.6 feet thick wooden poles spaced at equal distances from each other. Inside the circle is a large rectangular hole with evidence that four posts once stood in that spot. The archaeologists believe that the central structure would have led to spectacular views. All right, I won't read any more of that article. You get the idea. Um, but uh, these stone circles are found all over the world. They're also found in North America. And, in fact, they're found right here in mid-Missouri. As uh, some people who listen to this program know, you know, uh, St. Louis was actually called Mound City before it was uh, renamed St. Louis. And there are uh, mounds or cairns, as they call them in the Celtic mythology, all around this area. And uh, by mounds, I just mean these sort of, uh, just these big hills that sort of come up out of the hill, out of nowhere, or out of the, out of the, the landscape, out of nowhere. And uh, these mounds are... Um, uh, they were built by our ancestors, and uh, here in the Missouri area, they were built by the Plains Indians uh, a long, long time ago, probably. We don't know a whole lot about some of them. Cahokia uh, is one that we have done a little bit of research on, but in any case, these mounds are very similar uh, to the ideas that were associated with these stone circles uh, in England and now in Russia. And the bottom line is that it appears that many of our ancestors all around different points of the planet held similar beliefs and, uh, um, and ritualized those beliefs through uh, ceremonies that incorporated these types of terraforms, uh, these land formations that were built into the land. And they are all built with, uh, with intention. They're all located very intentionally. They're not random. Uh, oftentimes, if you get above them and start to plot them on a piece of paper, uh, you can compare them to star charts, and you will find that many of them correspond to known star configurations and constellation configurations. And uh, so these things are all over the planet, and it's still quite a mystery as to uh, exactly how they were used, but uh, we know that they were used in ritual and in ceremony. And they were very important uh, to our ancestors, and they were also used uh, for um, uh, timekeeping and for uh, viewing of astronomy. So uh, the idea, again, that all of our ancestors are uh, these stupid knuckle-dragging apes uh, that, uh, that knew nothing is sort of a misconception. Well, not sort of a misconception. It is a misconception. And there's a tremendous amount of information from our ancestors that uh, if we pay a little bit more attention to them, we have very much to learn. And it has, again, to do with, uh, with ego and these other things. We always tend to think that we are, you know, the, uh, the current kings of the world. We are the current uh, top of the food chain on this planet, so to speak. And uh, we 
uh, it's very easy to get caught up in that and uh, and assume that we have everything figured out. And uh, when we do that, then we neglect to to learn from the things that are available to learn from in the present and also in the past. Uh, so keep that in mind. A uh, real interesting story about uh, a new sort of Stonehenge uh, Stonehenge monument that's been found in Russia. And again, the, we, we were just talking about asteroids, about how many of these things are flying around out there that we don't even know about. Well, same thing here. There are monuments like these that are all over the planet that we haven't even discovered yet. You know, down in South America in the Amazon, and uh, if you go over to Indonesia and go to the islands of Java and uh, you know some of these places that are uh, that are that are off the beaten path, and there are uh, monuments and civilizations and cities that exist in these forests that are uncovered every once in a while, and they're all over the place. So we really don't know how many of them there are, and uh, it's just a. Uh, every time we discover one of them, it's just a great thing because it shows us again that in the past uh, everything was connected, and uh, there's a lot of evidence that shows that these these different cultures, these different civilizations were connected uh, because they had similar beliefs, similar rituals, similar, similar ceremonial things. They had trade, all kinds of things. So anyway, uh, we'll talk about that again in a minute. Let's put a little music on here. Um, actually, I take that back. I'm going to read one more story, and uh, then we'll put music on, and we'll come back and get ready for that interview with, uh, with William Lyon, okay? Uh, this is just one that I thought was kind of funny. We talk about... Uh, uh, on this program a lot, I'm always telling you, know, don't, don't discount things uh, without investigating them yourself. Uh, don't uh, just think because uh, you have a preconception uh, that something is either true or not true or stupid or, or not stupid or whatever because things are just stranger than we can imagine. And uh, here's one that, uh, uh, that should give you a little jolt. It's actually kind of funny, but it also, it also makes the point uh, that I was just uh, talking about there. This is, uh, and again, this is not from The Onion or any of those uh, types of publications, okay? Although I love The Onion. All right, uh, the president's plea, find Nessie. Listen to this. Bill Clinton's secret psychic spies were ordered to contact the Loch Ness Monster. Bill Clinton ordered a bizarre spy unit to contact the Loch Ness, Loch Ness Monster by telepathy. The then U.S. president gave the go-ahead for his psychic spying unit to find Nessie as part of a $1.5 million operation. One of the leading lights in the hush-hush mission later claimed to have found a faint trace of the elusive monster using his psychic powers. But in his report to the White House, he admitted that the monster he saw was only the ghost of a dinosaur. Operation Nessie was launched to establish whether psychic contact could be made with alien life forms. The spies' activities were kept secret from regular Army top brass with reports going directly to Washington. The exercise has been revealed by author John Ronson in his new book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, about the U.S. military's weirdest tactics and operations. Ronson was given access to previously classified materials for the book. He said it was extremely serious operation, however crackpot it may sound. The Americans were convinced the Russians were ahead of them in the field of psychic study. Now, this is Mike talking here. That is true, and uh, we'll do a show on remote viewing in the future here. That reminds me, I need to get a hold of Ingo Swan or Joe McMonagall or one of those guys, but... Uh, or maybe Yuri Geller, he'd be the guy to talk to, actually. I wonder if he's still alive. Maybe we'll talk to Yuri Geller. I'll try to get a hold of him. Anyway, uh, the, Amer uh, the U.S. Army worked on the project uh, from a base at Fort Meade, Maryland. It was uh, led by General Albert Stubblebine, Chief of Intelligence, U.S. Army, and Major Ed Dames. Ed Dames, another one of these guys, remote viewer that I was talking about. 
The unit had begun investigating UFOs and the possibility of alien races, and uh, particularly Martians. Uh, blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on and on. But anyway, the U.S. government is using your tax dollars secretly, first of all. We just found out about this, and that's an operation that was going on at least probably, well, we know it had to be at least five years ago, uh, anywhere between five and nine years ago, but uh, they're using tax money to try to telepathically connect the lock, uh, uh, communicate with the Loch Ness Monster. So, uh, so we got that going on, and uh, as I say, it's kind of funny, but it's also one of these things, if you think that all these things are crazy, well, your government doesn't think they're crazy, even though, out, uh, even though in, uh, on, the, on the surface, if you, uh, if you listen to them talk, they certainly would never admit something like this in public or admit it uh, on the television or something because what it does is it, it, it gives legitimacy uh, to these ideas. And I don't particularly care to have a discussion with Nessie, but I am interested in the ideas of field effects and telepathy and remote viewing because these are real phenomenon that are happening. They've been happening for a long time, and because... They've been kept under the wraps of national security for so long. The average person doesn't know a thing about them, and they think that they lie in the realm of fantasy. Uh, but they don't lie in the realm of fantasy. They lie in the realm of reality. Uh, and uh, we just haven't been uh, uh, given uh, valid access to that information and that data in order to verify it for ourselves as, as average, uh, average human beings. So and there's a story right there that uh, lets you know that... Uh, the U.S. government um, and the Department of the Army uh, are still actively working on these types of things and have been for a long, long time. And uh, um, I'm sure for the Republicans out there, you'll say it was just another Democratic, uh, uh, a Demic uh, another another waste of money by the Democrats. But I can assure you that uh, that all of the uh, uh, all of the different political parties. Uh, are involved in this stuff, and by all of them, I guess I just mean the main, uh, the, the main two, because basically every other party in this country has been marginalized now, and uh, Republican or Democrat is the only way to go, and uh, so they got a, uh, a sort of uh, monopoly on um, on all of this stuff. So we're trying to break that stuff out of the woodwork and uh, bring it out of the closet and uh, talk about it because uh, it's stuff that is highly relevant and stuff that's very important right now and uh, the things that are happening on this planet right now are showing us or should be showing us that uh, now is the time to release this information now is the time to release these technologies because uh, if not now when okay uh, back in a moment this is Mike you're listening to Radio Orbit uh, this is new from the Tragically Hip it's called Vaccination Scar from their newest release called In Between Evolution, and perhaps that's where we are. Show to this little stuck of bold 
Tragically hip. That's called Vaccination Scar. Cool tune from their new CD, In Between Evolution. And uh, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. Uh, i got a couple things I want to talk to you about real fast before we get into that interview with William Lyon. And um, uh, we will uh, we'll do that in just a second. I think... I don't know if I have to do... Uh, no, I need to do something for the radio station here pretty soon but i'll do it at the top of the hour so okay uh and it's not my fault uh that i forgot to do the promotion or whatever i was supposed to do it's jeff wheeler's fault because it's his fault and uh in fact i'm what what mic are you on two yeah there there he is i'll let him defend himself but it is his fault because he came in here and uh um confused me so oh well yeah well that's not that hard to do right <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, we're having fun in here at about 2:45. Uh, oh, what about that caller? Oh, uh, somebody called and mentioned the medicine bow, and uh, uh, although I don't have the time to talk about it right now, I will just say thanks for calling, and that is an interesting concept as well. And we will talk about that maybe next week. I'll get a little information, and we'll talk about the medicine bow um, uh, before uh, before we do our interview next week. So thanks for calling, and. Uh, uh, send me an email too if anybody else has uh, things like that, that that they get reminded of. You know, when we talk about all these things, if something comes up that reminded you of something that you read in the past or a question that you used to have or something, just email it to me and we'll we'll try to address it on the show uh, at a later date. And that's one that we will do. The medicine bow is really a cool uh, concept, and we'll talk about that next week. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see. Um all right, this, this, this is a, a setup that I want to do for the interview, and uh, I will, um, I'll read this entire piece because it's pretty short, but you'll get the gist of what I'm talking about here in a minute, okay? U.S. to launch new moon mission in 2010. U.S. to launch new moon mission in 2010. That's the title. Just think about that for a second, okay? All right, now that you've thought about it. The United States will launch a mission in 2010 to land two stationary robots on the moon to collect rock samples before returning to Earth, a U.S. scientist said here Tuesday. Carl Peters of Brown University's Department of Geological Sciences, who was involved in the U.S. space program, said the aim of the Moonrise mission was to land at the moon's largest and oldest crater, the South Pole Atkin, or Aitken Basin. The purpose is to, study, is to study how long ago the basin was formed and return materials derived from the deep interior to Earth for analysis. It will also help us uh, to understand the unique process of how basins are formed. Hmm. 
Peters is also the chairwoman for the International Lunar Exploration Group, an organization formed to promote cooperation between nations. She said scientists in the United States were still identifying which landing spots in the basins would be good for the twin robots to gather samples. Each robot will collect one kilogram of rocks and fragments, which will give us an insight into the basin's geological history, she told the delegates from the International Conference on Exploration and Utilization of the Moon in northern Indian city of Udaipur. More than 200 delegates from 16 countries are participating in the five-day conference. Okay, so I sort of read that whole article tongue-in-cheek. Uh, didn't we do this 45 years ago in 1969? Didn't we go to the moon and collect rock samples? I think we did. I remember that. In fact, we went there a number of times in uh, rocket ships that... Uh, uh, burn liquid fuel and solid fuel we shoot that we shot those this is a this is archaic information for you youngsters out there but we actually had rockets that went to the moon in the 1960s and in the 1970s wow so now we have this new mission that's scheduled for six years from now it's going to take them six years to prepare for this most current mission to send a couple of robots to the moon to pick up one kilogram of rocks Okay? Now, if you listen to this show, you understand why I'm pausing and why I'm talking like this. Because it's a farce. It is an absolute farce. Okay? The, the technology to go to the moon and, correct, and collect stones was established in the mid-1960s. It was operational by 1969, and it was passe by 1973. So, uh, the fact, if this is a real mission... Then, then we should just scrap NASA because it's a total joke and it's a waste of our time and a waste of our money. If it's not a real mission, if it's a cover for something else, which wouldn't be out, outside of the question as NASA has become primarily a defense-related uh, agency, even though its charter, uh, NASA's charter, is that it is a public, uh, a public institution. And in fact, all, all the information that NASA uncovers is supposed to be, uh, according to their charter, supposed to be in the public domain. Well, go, go check out uh, um, the, mission, uh, uh, the mission agendas for the shuttle, for the space shuttle for the last 20 years, and see how many of those missions you can actually look at and find out what they were doing on those missions. And then, sh and then look at how many of them were classified. You will find that about 90% of the shuttle missions uh, and the experiments that were carried out or the, or the uh, operations that were, that were carried out on those missions are now classified under national security, as everything else is these days. Um, so we really have no idea what they're doing when they do these things, but, uh, but the ridiculousness of these ideas I want to bring to the forefront because when people are talking about uh, uh, technology that in five years or six years is going to allow us to go to the moon and collect rocks and act like this is something that we should be excited about, um, well, I, it's, it's just beyond uh, my imagination. It's just absolutely unfathomable to me so uh, so I don't know what uh, I don't know what that's about but uh, it's very frustrating to me when I see those things uh, those sorts of things happen so okay uh, anyway uh, Bill Line has written a book called Occult Ether Physics and he also wrote another book called um, uh, Occult Science Dictatorship and the uh, it's a little unfortunate that the titles of his books are, are kind of controversial and uh, people probably wouldn't pick them up, but, uh, but he talks about some real interesting concepts in those books. And uh, 
um, we're going to listen to uh, an interview that I had with him a couple weeks ago talking about that. And before I go into that, I want to say a few things because, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're going to be talking about energy and concepts of energy and uh, physics over the next couple months and trying to... Trying to uh, uh, to wash some of this stuff and uh, and find out what's real and what's not real and uh, determine um, what we know and what we don't know about these things. But before I do that, I want to just give you a piece of my own mind because um, the stuff you're going to hear from William Lyon tonight is um, stuff that a lot of people will probably consider uh, crazy and they won't believe it when they first hear it. And it uh, that's your prerogative. That's your prerogative. And, um, but with that in mind, what I'd like to say is that the, all of these things that we ha- these ideas that we have are preconceptions, and uh, most of this stuff related to energy um, is stuff that we've been told or we've been taught. It's not stuff that we know for ourselves, that we've learned for ourselves. So right now we're basically uh, we're going on what we've been told or what we've been taught. And in those situations, regardless of what the topic is, you have to be a little bit careful because you don't have the experience yourself and you're going on somebody else's word. And um, that's what's happening right now in science. And uh, to give you an example of that, I want to talk about the Big Bang for a moment because we've got to start to change the way that we think. And uh, to do that, what we need to do is... Number one, get rid of pre, get, get, get rid of preconception and um, these ideas that we've got everything figured out. And so my example for that is going to be the Big Bang, okay? Um, in scientific terms, the Big Bang is something that they call a singularity. Uh, in astrophysics, they refer to the Big Bang as a singularity. Now, this is the term that they use. Now, what that means, what, what the term singularity means is that theory cannot predict it, yet it is necessary to make everything that follows work. Um, So the science priests, as I call them, the high priests of science, they just say, well, there's no reason, there's no argument, but the rest of the theory needs it. So they call it a singularity. Okay? Uh, This unpredictable, unimaginable event, that's what the... That's what the Big Bang is. It was an unpredictable and, in my opinion, unimaginable event, which is sort of like uh, what I would describe as a hyper-improbability, something that is almost impossible to happen. Now that has become the basis for all of modern science, and it's one of the many elephants in the living room that we just don't discuss. The idea that the entire universe burst forth from nothing in the blink of an eye Well, if you can believe that, then ideas such as we're going to be talking about tonight and over the next couple months should not be so difficult. I mean, mean, we were were talking to Dennis McKenna a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about psychoactive plants and hallucinogens. And, well, believing in the Big Bang, this idea that the universe sprang forth from nothing in the blink of an eye, uh, that's about as as psychedelic an idea as, as I can imagine. Uh, it, uh, it's absolutely, uh, as I said before, a, a hyper-improbability, which has no theory behind it. Uh, and um, interestingly, it's necessary to make all the other theories, the subsequent theories, work. So, so keep an open mind with this stuff, all right? Um, we've all been thoroughly conditioned to believe that virtually nothing is possible, when in fact everything is possible. 
Okay? So keep that in mind as you listen. Uh, it's not just, uh, not just Bill Lyon, the guy we're going to be talking to here in a minute, but uh, uh, all of these guys on the fringe and these girls on the fringe, I call them the lunatic fringers. In fact, I need to find that song by Red Rider, Lunatic Fringe. We'll need to play that on the show sometime. It's a great song. But that's what these guys are. They're on the fringe. And uh, historically, the people on the fringe are the people that you need to listen to. They're the ones that... Uh, they're the ones that are the pioneers, the groundbreakers, the, uh, the people with the new advancing ideas. And interestingly, during their time, during their lifetime, most of these people are thought of as heretics and lunatics and cra- crazy people and, uh, and, and nuts. Um, but that's not always the case. A lot of these people are very intelligent, and they just uh, have a different way of looking at things. And when you want to learn something, the best way to learn is to look at it from a different perspective. So, uh, so that's what we're going to be doing tonight. We're going to be talking to William Ryan in just a moment. Uh, actually, it's a recorded interview that I did a couple weeks ago, so you can kick back and enjoy that. Um, once that starts, uh, give me a call here at the station uh, if anybody's listening and you want a, uh, a Fate Magazine T-shirt or a... Um, uh, archive from uh, CD-ROM for the entire archives of cyberspaceorbit.com. Give me a buzz. I'll hook you up with that, and um, uh, and then we'll be back in just a little while. Uh, I'll cut into this interview every once in a while, every 20 minutes or so, and we'll play a little music and uh, and uh, make any comments that we want to make. Okay, so uh, the phone number, 1-800-895-5676 or 573-874-5676. Um, that's all I want to say. We'll get to this interview in a minute. The universe is stranger than we can imagine, though, so don't limit your imagination here, okay? Uh, we are all a part of this universe, and uh, it's as strange as you can imagine, and we are a part of it, so that makes things here uh, possibly just as strange, okay? So stick around just a minute. Bill Line, and uh, this is Radio Orbit on KOPN. I better do the station ID real fast here, 89.5, Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world, more than radio, it's community radio. KOPN, Columbia, and all surrounding areas. Back in a minute with William Line on Radio Orbit. Welcome back to Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan, as always, and tonight my guest is William Line. William is the author of a number of books, including Occult Ether Physics, which is a book about uh, Nikola Tesla's a propulsion system that Tesla was working on uh, in, uh, during his lifetime, and most recently the book Occult Science Dictatorship. William is an ex-Air Force intelligence officer and has a wealth of knowledge about some very obscure but important information. So let's, uh, let's get right to him. And um, from uh, Lamy, New Mexico, here he is, William Line. Hi, Bill. How's it going? Welcome to Radio Orbit. Hello, Mike. Uh, glad to be here. Let me correct something, and you can include this. This is fine. Uh, let me correct something. All I right. was not an intelligence officer. Aha, uh-huh, okay. I was an intelligence nobody. Uh, I was put into intelligence to shut me up. That's the only reason I was in intelligence. However, I didn't consider myself 
inferior to anyone in that organization. <laughs> well, I think maybe that's a good place to start. I wanted to I, I wanted to uh, start out doing a little bit of background, so maybe let's do that. Why, why don't you uh, why, why don't you tell us what you mean by what you just said and and uh, how this whole thing started and how you got involved in uh, uh, the ideas of ether physics and uh, anti gravity propulsion and all these other things that we're going to be talking about tonight. Well, and uh, I, I began my interest in this began very early when I was just a little boy, maybe seven or eight years old. Okay. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I was about eight years old, and when I first heard about the UFOs, they called them flying disks at the time, and they were seeing them. People that worked in the oil fields were seeing them in southern New Mexico mostly because a lot of people went up there to to uh, maintain and run oil pumps. Right. Uh, now, was, where were you at this time, Bill? Well, you... I lived in Kermit, Texas at the time. Okay, so you were and going up in Texas. So I wanted to see one of these things. And in 47, my father played in a golf tournament in Roswell. <laughs> and I saw one of these things at a great distance. It was just like a little dime, you know, turning in the sun up there, way up there, way off in a distance. Right. So I said, well, maybe that was one of them. And uh, so in 1950, <laughs> when I was in the Davis Mountains at a scout ranch, you might know, uh, these things were hovering over the town where I lived, which, and I wasn't there. And my family all observed them. The town observed them. They were there. One one was there one day, 15 minutes, and, and then the next day there were two of them at the same time of day for another 30 minutes. So there's a total of about 45 minutes of viewing time that I missed because I happened to be in the Davis Mountains. But and, lots and lots of witnesses. Have oh, yes, time. a lot of them. And, and my friend Ken took photographs of them, and uh, the Air Force bought those photographs from him and the negatives made him sign some sort of a national security agreement and paid him 250 bucks, which was pretty good for a kid, you know, uh, you know, 10, 10-year-old kid, something like that. And he has subsequently denied knowing anything about that. Huh. Uh, of course, he was in the CIA and uh, <laughs> every other kind of covert, covert op- uh, outfit you can imagine. And uh, so he says, well, I can't remember that, but I wouldn't wouldn't uh, swear that I didn't, you know, take the photographs. <laughs> right, right, so right. I thought, well, this is pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, he's trying to cut, the, trying to split the middle of his uh, Masonic oath, mm-hmm. you know, not being false to a trust. He's basically saying, well, I wouldn't swear that I didn't see him, but I don't remember that I did. Right, right, right. All too familiar these days. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> of course, no kid that age is going to forget something like that. He was a pretty good photographer for his age. Yeah, those are sort of uh, life, uh, life-changing life events when those things happen. So. Yeah, my mother described him as looking like bobbins, uh, you know, sewing machine bobbins, yeah, which means it was a type that had the slot around the outside. Hmm. Yeah, um, like a little shoulder on it or something. Yeah, and I didn't get to see one until 53 when we were having an ice cream party in the backyard, and, and I looked up as I was turning the freezer and spotted this ship. It wasn't but about, you know, 250, 300 feet away, uh, precessing. Very wild. It was like 45-degree angle of precession in about two two cycles per second. Wow, uh, and it was steady. Yeah, and uh, I said, wow, look at that. And everybody looked at it except our tenant, uh, a woman, uh, and she would just look at me while I was looking at the saucer. And uh, I later found out, well, she was chief of aerial gunnery instructions, 
at Sarasota, Florida during World War II. She had the rank of captain. And uh, so I figure she might have been a security agent that was planted in our town, and she was only interested in my reaction to the saucer. Hmm. I watched it. Hmm. Uh, and uh, anyway, this thing did two 90-degree turns vertically, uh, went right straight down, and then leveled out again about 100 feet lower, and then shot to a point of infinity on the horizon in three seconds as I counted them off, 1,000, 1,000, and 2, 1,000, and Right. And so that put that speed on that ship at about 25,000 miles per hour. Wow. Now, and Bill, was, so so do you think that was a setup? Do you think that that, that, that whole thing was planned and, uh, and, and and it was designed for you to see? Could have been. Yeah. I had been building toy or, you know, model UFOs with airplane engines and trying different configurations, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at the time. And I was also experimenting with Tesla coils as this mm-hmm. woman observed me doing all this stuff, you know. So mm-hmm. it could have been trying to... Uh, uh, an attempt to convince me these things were from outer space, mm. you know, displaying some of their most fantastic colors and so forth, right. and corona discharges. But all it did was it gave me more information. I never, I never for a minute thought they were from outer space. Is that right? Yeah, and uh, never believed it for a minute uh, because I knew these things had been developed by the Germans because I knew fighter pilots and, and bomber pilots and bomber crew who had seen these things over Germany. Right, right. There were plenty of reports of the so-called Foo Fighters. And we had a lot of fighters, and I belonged to a model airplane club that was basically run by a bunch of fighter aces and, and other uh, flyers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we had a good storehouse of people available who had, you know, witnessed these things. And so, you know, most of the people in that part of the country, a lot of people believe that these were secret German aircraft that were brought over there because they started popping up after the war. Right. And, uh, of course, Werner von Braun was brought to, oh, I can't remember it right now, Fort Bliss. Anyway, he was brought there, which is where uh, U.S. Army Ordnance Headquarters was at the time before they moved to Redstone Arsenal in 1950. So, anyway, he was there, uh, and I believe the saucer projects were brought to New Mexico. I used to have a friend who, uh, in, in the university... Her, uh, she had married an American sergeant, and but she helped the rank of major in the in the uh, German West German military. And at the age of 15, she came over to Roswell in White Sands as a security agent because she could speak six languages. They uh, she would negotiate. She told me to get these guys out of jail in Mexico when they'd go down there and get in trouble. You know, hooting it up on weekends. Right, right. They brought 15,000 Germans to New Mexico. And uh, that's a fact that the government has never confirmed, but except for Helen, and she told me. So she was part of the project, so I guess she knew what, what she was talking about. Now, were, were those were those 15,000 supposedly, supposedly related to, to the paperclip operation? Yeah. All right. Well, they were specifically related to the Flying Saucer Project, too. Uh, rockets and flying saucers, they were all under Army ordinance. Right. And... Uh, which is a good place to hide them. Who would ever think to look at the Army ordinance uh, for flying saucers? They'd think right away, think think Air Force. Right. right. Uh, but uh, they hid them under there, and that Von Brown was really, you know, keeping that thing close to him anyway. You know. Well, hey, let's. Uh, why, don't, why don't you Why don't you tell us a little bit about Werner Von Brown and who he was and and why he's important to this story? Well. Really, a more important person before him was a guy named Billy Lay, L-E-Y, who was really the rocket genius in Germany in the 1930s. 
he was the the most brilliant young rocket engineer and was ahead of anybody else there. Okay. He was Von Braun's tutor okay. in the research organization that they formed, which was a private organization originally. And his name was, one more time, I'm sorry, his name was Lay, L-A-Y or L-E-Y? L-E-Y, okay. Uh-huh. Anyway, Lay was invited to America by the American Rocket Society, and the American Rocket Society was formed, uh, founded by my friend Peter Van Dresser and about four or five of his friends who were private rocket experimenters, and then it had, and then their rocket society had been taken over by the Smithsonian, the you know uh, National Geographic, and uh, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they were in the same boat as the Nazis. You know what I mean? I mean the Nazis took over the private rocket uh, organization in Germany. Anyway, they invited Lay over, and then Lay stayed in the apartment of Peter and Florence Van Dresser in New York City, in the Greenwich Village, and defected. And uh, so they had to drum up another guy, and that was Von Braun, and he came over, and uh, then he uh, worked with Goddard in southern New Mexico in uh, 19, about 1936 to 38. So Von Braun was here in the U.S. before he went back to continue the work in Germany uh, during World War II. Yes, strange as it may seem, and, it's, and it also looks like I'm the only person who has published that. That is an incredible that has been fact. Concealed, right? An incredible fact. How do we verify that? Well, I don't know. Peter knew him. He he was you know he was the uh, editor of Astronautics. I think he was a very credible source, and he was angry because his technology. He was the one who invented. Peter was actually the inventor of the first successful liquid fuel rocket engine. Okay. And Goddard got credit for it, oh. but it was Peter's invention. I've seen the. Uh, uh, original drawings, which are in the archives, and uh, and what Peter did was he wrapped the fuel line around the combustion chamber to keep it from odor overheating and exploding like Goddard's rockets did. But anyway, Von Braun got that discovery from Goddard and uh, took it back to Germany and put it on all the V2s and so forth. Right. And so Peter was very angry about that. Uh, but uh, aside from also being ripped off for the credit for his discovery, and uh, but he also was angry about Von Braun because he told me that Von Braun did research in Los Alamos before the war. So I I didn't know, you know, that was back in that was about 1975 when we discussed those things, 74, 75, somewhere along in there, where we discussed those things involving uh, Von Braun and his research at Los Alamos, and then uh, 1979 I had a chance to purchase a box from an old guy at a flea market. Uh, he carved all this stuff on the on the top of the, of the thing, and it basically was, I didn't realize at the time, uh, it was the project that Von Brown ran at Los Alamos in the 30s. 1937 was the date on the box, and it showed the project name as P2, small p, large 2, which okay. seems to come out of Tesla technology, you know, the uh, basically an oscillating dipole. Uh, Interesting. Also, a reference to masonry again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It had a triangle with a dot was a symbol for it. Wow. And uh, and uh, the old fellow was a, a mestizo from Pohaki, and he says I couldn't find figure out why they didn't hire me in the in the new project when it came along. He says I worked in this one uh, under the Dr. Von Brown, and when they came along with the Manhattan Project, I couldn't figure out why they didn't hire me. You know, of course, he was just a laborer for for that. German project, sure. 
and didn't seem to know much about it. And then, then a, no, no more than a week later, I purchased this Piltover compass, which is a Polar Slave compass from a salvage dealer in Albuquerque, and it was traced by the government back to Sandia Base, where a guy had stolen it. It was classified salvage. Huh. So it's a part off of World War II, 1948, dated uh, October 10th, 1943. It was, a, it was a device for controlling a flying saucer. And of course, I recognized that later as something that Tesla had invented and, and tested in 1917. And so it basis for inertial guidance systems. Pardon, pardon me for interrupting. At that time, you weren't real familiar with Tesla's work at that time. Well, I was always familiar with it, but I hadn't done deep, deep research. Right, and made the connection. Okay. Yeah, I, I was hunting for these specific things in his research, and I had to go back to the 1890s to get the propulsion technology. My gosh. Because it had been covered. Tesla himself began to get secretive about right, it. Right, he was hiding it. Because he was afraid the wrong people would get hold of it, and you might know the wrong people did get hold of it. Right, and I mean, he was being taken advantage and used and beaten up pretty badly by uh, some of the powers that be as it was, and I know he was trying to keep that under wraps. So. Well, typically he had offered the technology to the U.S. government first, right. and if they rejected it, then he'd sell it to anybody. Right. And in this case, he sold uh, the most advanced submarine and torpedo technology to Nazi Germany. Well, it was before it was Nazi Germany, 1914. Right. But it's possibly even sold his UFO propulsion technology to them at that early date, even though he hadn't really developed it very far. And then in 1930, uh, in the 1930s at Los Alamos, that project appears to be a Tesla project. Tesla at that time had been cultivated by a German agent named uh, George Sylvester Spierich. And, uh, and Tesla was getting the morning German newspapers every morning at the German embassy in New York City. Hmm. And so I figure that's, he also made the remark that he had, uh, that he was working in about three research laboratories at that time. So I figure one of them was probably once applied by the Germans. And, uh, uh, and meanwhile, they were doing this project in New Mexico to test this technology out. At the same time, Von Braun was working with Goddard on rockets. And I don't know what I've been wondering about is that Goddard know about the UFO technology. At that time, yeah. Yeah. Was, yeah. He, was he privy to that? But I doubt it. Hmm, interesting, because, you know, and it, it's, it's not that much of a stretch to think that Tesla may have gone to the Germans because we know throughout his career he was always struggling for funding. Yeah. Well, you know, at that time in the 1930s, nobody knew that World War II was going to happen. Sure. And uh, it was probably explained to him by by Von Braun or somebody as being some sort of humanitarian project, you know. <laughs> so he was probably sucked into it, you know. And uh, and there were all kinds of crisscrossing alliances going on, you know. Right. And uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, even the U.S. government was, you might say, was even considered an ally of the German government at the time. A lot of people don't know that, but uh, uh, that's another little interesting fact. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, 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 uh, these... These talons go way back, and and the octopus has many legs, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I did have a book put out by the Roosevelt administration praising Hitler and Mussolini, mm -hmm. so I thought that was interesting. But the book was stolen from me. I thought that it was called The New Dealers, huh. and uh, it was written by quote unofficial observer, mm -hmm. but uh, it was a propaganda piece, and it explained the New Deal, you know. Uh, as as opposed to the old deal, which was the first administration, and uh, but they were still praising Hitler and Mussolini. I thought that was interesting. Right. 
but uh, uh, anyway, uh, this technology, uh, Tesla, I've, I've come across more information since uh, the original, uh, uh, the last books were written uh, concerning, you know, the, one of the things that I failed to emphasize enough is that uh, what was very important is gyro stabilization. Because a ship like a UFO has no wings or tails or, or you know, aerodynamic stabilizers. Right, right, right. What's going to hold it up right and keep it from flopping over upside down and shooting down and hitting the ground or something? You right. see, I mean, it'd be like getting a helicopter upside down. But uh, so what he did was he had uh, he had gyro stabilizers, but he used his turbines as, as a part of this stabilization system. Okay. Turbines spinning would perform the same function as a gyro stabilizer. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. And, uh, and then your, your, your master compass, the one that you navigated with, was on gimbals. So it was, it, was, uh, it was oriented towards the North Star or to true north. And then no matter where you went, it would continue to hold that north heading and give you a heading so you could navigate. Right, then you just... So these things traveling as fast as they do, imagine the trouble of navigating them. Right, right, right. So if you have a steady, if you have a steady pull, pull point or or whatever, then then you can just then you can just uh, modulate off of that. Yeah. Right. They can always get their direction at least. They they wouldn't know where they were now with with the global positioning system. They can know exactly where they are, and uh, that, by the way, is is combined with uh, robotics in some ships that they use today to find oil. They send these ships out there, uh, remote autonomous uh, ships. They call them, let's see, v- they call them uh, ARVs. Right, right Autonomous right. Revo- remote vehicles. Right. They're pre-programmed before takeoff, and they're sent out, and they use uh, gamma lasers to locate oil deposits under the ground, and they can, they can search a grid of a country and know exactly where all the oil deposits are. And they can send them over anywhere they want to send them, but they're... they're Totally autonomous. They send, they pre-program them. They use artificial intelligence on them also, and they send these things out, and they come back and deliver their data. And uh, so they know how much oil there is in the world, but we'll never find out unless we choke it out of them. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, they've they've got more than we'll ever use. I'll tell you that. I know for a fact that we've got a tremendous amount of oil, and that that we'll never find out about because the government has declared it national security secret. Yeah, you know, there's a whole that's a whole another topic, you know, the whole idea of peak oil that uh, that yeah, that's oh yeah, that's phony stuff. I'm surprised that uh, Michael Rupert is writing that article about that. In fact, Rupert has really jumped on the peak oil bandwagon. I mean, really, really did about uh, about a year and a half ago after the uh, uh, a little way, you know, about a year after the 9/11 tragedies. Well, that's um, not true. It just didn't. It isn't true. But they want us to think that. Hmm. Russia's got more oil than they can ever, uh, ever possibly use, but they don't know where it is because the big oil corporations know where it is. They can find it. They've got, they've had technology to find it since 1940s. Using they things didn't know like how to read the logs. Right, uh, using things like you just talked about. Yeah, they didn't know how to read the logs until the 1960s. Huh. They discovered, oh, look at these old logs. Look, there's the oil right there. And they were able to find the sine wave patterns. See in the old logs. And they're shot with an airplane. You know, they fly over with a plane and do this logging. And now they use UFOs. And uh, they uh, combine this uh, global positioning system for, you know, navigating these things. But uh, they also have this inertial guidance or celestial navigation system on them. So if that, if that, 
that master compass is pointed at the north star, then no matter where you are on Earth, it will give you true north. Right. And uh, so that's part of the way these things are, are done. And uh, so Tesla had, you know, people were skeptical, you know. Well, where's the proof? Well, there's the illustrations that were done in 1914 for Tesla, according to his specifications, showing these ships. And uh, they are nothing but flying saucers and flying, you know, electro-propulsive, electro-dynamic ships. Right. And they have no other means of propulsion other than electric, electrical. And uh, so that's amazing that this technology is, is, is now believed by the masses to be from outer space or uh, non-existent. I talked to a guy yesterday who was a, uh, he was a lawyer who is a Vietnam veteran had some nasty wounds on him. I went to a spa, okay. and uh, but he just he said he just quit the Republican Party two years ago. <laughs> I told him, well, that wasn't long enough to really get your head going in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it takes a while to recover from that. You know? And he was incredulous. He'd never seen a UFO. I said, if you watch the skies around here, you can't miss them. You know, and I'll add that it takes a while to recover from the Democratic Party as well. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know he you know. But, you know, uh, the thing is, uh, he was living in a prime area. He should have seen these things, you know. Right, right. He was living in, in uh, oh, somewhere like West Virginia, Kentucky area, right on the border, and there's a lot of UFOs around there, but there's more of them over here. You can see them easier here. If you if you get in the habit of watching the sky, you'll see them. Right. You can't miss it. Yeah, most people just aren't looking up. Yeah, we've had, we've seen, in the last six months, we've seen at least two startling sightings really and uh in the last uh let's see the last I, my son saw one at a shopping center and uh it was by odd coincidence that uh there was a fellow there uh, who was a security guard and he came over and started watching it with my son and turns out he's a guy that i know who showed me a lot of his video shots that he'd made of these things and so it was really funny huh. uh, that the two of them were seeing this thing together. <laughs> I didn't see it, but it was sort of similar to one that we saw on August the 13th, uh, Friday the 13th uh, this year. My friend from Italy and his wife were visiting, and my son and, and this couple and me were, were eating supper on a patio of a restaurant, uh, Tomasita's restaurant in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Okay. And after we'd eaten at about 9 o'clock, this great big red one came down from about 5,000 feet. All right, we'll uh, get back to that uh, interview with Bill Line in just a few minutes. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's about 3.25, and um, we'll just take a short break here, and then we'll get back to that interview. Anybody who has questions or comments, uh, you can give me a call, 874-5676, 1-800-895-5676. And uh, thanks to Robert down there in Jeff City listening for the first time. Appreciate it, and uh Hope you're enjoying the show tonight. Okay, back in a minute, uh, and we'll continue with this interview with Bill Line. And in the meantime, this is Soul Coughing with Unmarked Helicopters from the CD Songs in the Key of X. i 
been changed, two fatty coils emerging. Some other thought is sinking. This life stands above the hounds, downs on the ground. This illumination visited upon the whole land. That's uh, Unmarked Helicopters from Soul Coughing. That's from a CD called Songs in the Key of X. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. Uh, let's see. Here's a quick uh, piece of business we've got to take care of. Uh, if you're purchasing gifts for the holiday season, if you need uh, gifts for your family and friends, KOPN can help. We have KOPN stuff, long-sleeve black T-shirts, one of which I am wearing right now, uh, coffee mugs, latte mugs. Uh, and we have a bunch of books and CDs available for... Uh, for a donation to the station. So uh, to get your KOPN gifts, stop by the station anytime between 9 and 5, Monday through Friday, 915 East Broadway is where we're located, right downtown Columbia. And uh, it's a great way to support the station, great way to support 
listener-supported community radio and uh, get your gift shopping done at the same time. So uh, if you're interested in some Christmas gifts, uh, come down to KOPN and get a few things down here, okay? Okay, this is Mike, and um, we're listening to an interview I did a couple weeks ago with William Line talking about Nikola Tesla and anti-gravity technology and UFOs and lots of interesting stuff. So we'll get right back to it here and uh, enjoy it. Be back in a few minutes, okay? Mexico. Okay. And after we'd eaten at about 9 o'clock, this great big red one came down from about 5,000 feet. It came right almost straight down, but you could see that it was maneuvering a little bit. Uh, you know, it was, seemed to be disabled. But it was maneuvering a little, bit, a little bit as if to make sure it hit an open spot instead huh. of somebody's house. And it went right down in South really? West Quadrant. So we paid our bill, and there was probably about 15 or 20 people there in that patio that saw that ship with us. So we, we beat it out of there, and we went looking for this thing. The only thing we ran across was some suspicious police street blockades, which were supposedly be related to drugs, but we found out that drug bust had come down at 5 o'clock that afternoon. So why were they there at 10 o'clock at night? And so we went around, and a little bit later, we came back, searched different areas, and came back, and, and uh, we noticed that... Uh, there was a hazmat team there and at 11 o'clock at night on Friday night. Mm. And what they'd done is they they told the people in the neighborhood where the ship went down to evacuate because there was a meth lab there. That was a lie, of course. There was no there was no meth lab. And uh, so they basically evacuated their houses to get them out of there so they could extract that saucer from that. I say saucer. It was actually a red globe. Incredible. And uh, it was globular shaped and probably... From the best judgment I could make, it was at least 20 feet, maybe as large as 50 feet in diameter. My gosh. Uh, and it was putting off bright red light. Streams of bright red light were going out of it And when it went down. And uh, so somebody fired off a flare over there in the neighborhood where we think it went down, and I think that was just to show the other, the hazmat team, where to come where to, to, go, yeah. to pick it up. It was just a little red flare with a little parachute on it. And I also considered a possibility maybe they were trying to cover up the sighting and say that what I'd seen was a flare. It's kind of a joke because this thing was about <laughs> 10,000 times brighter than that flare. Mm-hmm. But then it came down from about 5,000 feet, so I don't know what kind of flare that would be. But another guy that I met in a few days who runs a natural food business in Santa Fe, uh, he uh, he lives up in Pewaukee where that where that guy carved that box, and that's close to Los Alamos. That's only about 10 miles from Los Alamos or so. Oh, where that guy was living in the cave or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. up close to there. Not too far from there. Uh, anyway, <laughs> this guy said he saw them all the time up there. He called them red globes. Hmm. At, around Los Alamos. That doesn't yeah. surprise me either. Yeah. yeah, and then my friend went, he and his wife went up near there, and they spotted another one over there the other side of Los Alamos. So, you know, uh, that's where they all come from and go from around here that I've noted. Okay. Well, hey, listen, um, before we talk more about the crafts themselves, actually, I'm going to ask you a, uh, a question, and then we'll talk maybe a little bit about the technology itself. Well, let's talk about the ether and uh, what the ether is and what ether physics are and what this stuff that Tesla was doing, how it was, uh, uh, what it was based on and, 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 and what the technology uh, what what the the basis of the technology is, okay? All right. Before we do that, this is a personal question. I have seen something around here. Um, 
which I think is a ship of some sort, a craft of some sort. I couldn't tell you what it is, but it looks like a star. It appears in the horizon or whatever. It looks just like a star, except every once in a while it, it looks like it has a rotational uh, component to it, and you'll see red, blue, and green. And But it's, it, it seems to stay stationary wherever it is. Uh, it doesn't make any sound, and it seems and it, it's almost as if it were disguised to look like a star. Yeah. Is that uh, something that you might be familiar with? Yeah, that's probably a ship. They hover for hours sometimes and uh, try to imitate stars. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they have even followed the constellations across the sky, but they don't maintain the same parallax. Right. In fact, the the, the first night I noticed it, uh, a friend of mine actually noticed it first, and he said, is that a helicopter? (laughs) Because he noticed there was sort of a rotational aspect to it. Well, what it is, it's, it's, it's precessing a little bit. You know, they're probably messing around and changing the engine speeds and so forth, and it's causing that thing to precess, and that causes the rotational look to it. Right, right. It's right. basically gyrating. Well, anyway, the thing stayed there for three or four hours while the while the star field behind it moved as it always does, you know. Yeah. And this thing did not move; it stayed exactly where it was, and we and we watched it for hours, even though it was quite quite a good ways away. Uh, you know, like I say, it appeared like a bright star, but, uh, I've seen but it was many times with huge uh, cloud banks behind them. Huh. You know? And just like that, with the red green little flashes coming out of it, those are probably laser communicators. They can't communicate with a normal radio, so they use laser beams that are communication laser beams. Is that right? Now, why can't they communicate with a regular radio? Uh, well, the field around them uh, makes it uh, very difficult for uh, a radio. Okay, all right. Well, that's getting Okay, now we're getting into this a little bit. We're talking about the fields and stuff. So that's a good segue here. Let's talk about that. What is driving these things? What is ether physics? And how? Uh, w- what's happening to, to drive these things and to let them do the things they can do? Well, in the late 1890s, Tesla did a series of uh, researches uh, into this phenomenon, and he was trying to discover the nature of the ether and how to manipulate it, uh, and distinguishing his own theory from from the theories that was being there was uh, ether theory being espoused by people like uh, oh, uh, there were a number of other people like uh, what's his name Hertz Heinrich right. Hertz, right. and uh, his um, of course these guys. These guys, what these guys were influenced in, long before Einstein, they were influenced by relativism. Relativism wasn't in, invented by Einstein. It was actually invented in the 18th century by a guy named Boscovich. And that little bit of physics misinformation screwed up more physicists than anybody, and he's really responsible for relativism as we know it today, which is really just a bunch of baloney. Yeah, we're still we're still uh, feeling the ripple effects of that yeah. from over 100 years ago. And it's just now beginning to be questioned by a lot of academic physicists, most of them don't have the, the courage to question it, but the ones that do are starting to realize that it's not a true theory. Right. And, of course, what they did, you see, Einstein wasn't some sort of evil guy who set out to spread misinformation. He was just a, he was just the lucky schlump who happened to be there espousing this theory and got promoted, <laughs> you know, by the media and all the corporations, of course. Uh, but uh, what they liked about it was the entropy idea, you know that, oh, we're using up all the energy so we can charge them more every day for, right. for the gasoline right. price. Makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. And, uh, of course, the whole here's the way Tesla discovered that this technology worked. Used electrostatic discharges, brush discharges, which are negative discharges. You, make, you emit those discharges in the direction that you want to travel. 
and then what happens is something called tubes of force, which are which are actually ether particles, align themselves and bring in and carry momentum into the ship and in the direction that you want to travel. So basically, it's an electrostatic discharge, and then you have high frequency on the back side of the ship to, to completely block the ether flow there. The high frequency just causes the heavy ions to bunch up around the electrode and, and the ether cannot get through. So that's what you want. You want the ether to come in from one direction. And the ether are just little minuscule, super tiny particles, but uh, they carry a certain amount of electric charge and they have a certain amount of positive mass, very tiny. Okay. But the momentum they carry is much larger than you would expect from such a tiny particle. And these particles, theoretically, would, we're, we're swimming in them, the whole, everything yeah. we know, right? Yeah. And, and you hear about the Nicholson-Morley experiments disproving the ether theory. Well, that's, that's wrong. All the, the Nicholson-Morley experiment did was disprove the prevalent ether theory, which was that there was this, as the Earth moved through space, the ether was in relative motion because it was stationary. And what the, what Tesla said was that the ether in the vicinity of the Earth is is carried along with it because there are electrostatic discharges, rapidly varying electrostatic discharges emitted by the Earth. And this rigidifies the ether and causes it to travel along with the Earth in its vicinity. And this explains the why, you know, gravity gets weaker as you go away from the Earth. And... Uh, is because gravity is just a function of this ether. Okay, okay. So it was and, the ether wind that they were disproving. Yeah, and they'd have to go into outer space to do that experiment to get a drift. Uh -huh. uh, and they were forming the experiment on Earth, so the ether was rigid in the vicinity, and they didn't detect any drift. So it travels sort of like the atmosphere does, just travels yeah. right along with the planet. Yeah. I mean, you think about it, what keeps the atmosphere from sweeping off of the Earth, you know? So, you know, it's, it's protected by the ion layers on the outer outer uh, areas, and uh, this, this kind of creates an envelope in space as the Earth moves through space, and this sort of thing also affects flying saucers. This explains why they can move at 25,000 miles an hour without making a sonic boom. It's because these electric discharges create an envelope uh, ahead of the ship, and this envelope is mutually repulsive, so it basically creates a repulsive envelope that the ship moves into. And after it goes through that, these particles don't come back together until the uh, until the charges have dissipated. All right, okay. okay. And so they kind of okay. softly come back together, and right. there's no boom. All right, I follow you. I follow and you. And the ship is lubricated, so it doesn't heat up on its surface, you know, and so forth and so on. So it's quite remarkable. But Tesla did uh, develop this system, and by 1914, he was uh, making flying versions and so forth. And uh, it was at that point that that the Germans got very curious and uh, sidled up to him. They had, there was a German agent, unregistered, of course. He was convicted later, uh, named Jörg Sylvester Fierich, uh who was a well-known kind of German intellectual in New York. He cultivated Tesla's friendship and, I think, probably learned a lot of private information from Tesla wow. uh, by palling around with him and one of the ways he humored Tesla was by joining with him in playing practical jokes on what they called the spiritists. Uh, Tesla was, uh, early in his life, he was 
religious, but later he became an atheist, and he uh, he liked to play practical jokes. He something he used to do with Mark Twain, <laughs> another fellow atheist, mm-hmm. and they would play practical jokes on people that were you know into psychic phenomena. Right, right. And so Tesla would would they would write these uh, you know trick letters and stuff and so forth. He and Furyk, and that's a way that Furyk gained his confidence. And uh, so they had a jolly good time, you know. Uh, Tesla was a practical joker, and uh, so it was pretty, pretty funny. <laughs> uh, you know, his relationship with Mark Twain was basically like that. And, yeah, and uh, Twain was a real interesting guy himself, or yeah, Samuel was. Clemens. So yeah, and uh, but anyway, Tesla somehow his technology fell into the hands of the Nazis, and uh, in the 1930s. So uh, whether he sold it to him or not. One way or the, one way or another, the Germans got the technology. Well, there wasn't anything to keep them from selling it to the Germans because the U.S. government had first shot at it. Right, and they, and they no it down. Right, right, right. They treated Tesla like he was crazy. And what happened is Incredible. between nineteen, you know, hundred nineteen thirty, the relativists had come into power in physics, and they were ridiculing Tesla. And Tesla was making fun of them. He wrote a review on the Van de Graaff generator that <laughs> was built by. Uh, MIT, and he right, made right. Such a, in his in his re- review of that invention, he made such a joke of it. He mm-hmm. he actually showed scientifically in that article how one of his little coils about a foot high would outperform that Van de Graaff. Incredible. And uh, they, these Van de Graaff had you know had thirty foot towers, fifteen feet in diameter, and two huge balls on. Oh it. yeah, they were giant. Yeah, and it was put in an airplane hangar and had to be rolled out on railroad rails and all this stuff. And, right. And a little Tesla coil would produce more, uh, you know, amperage and electrostatics than those generators would. (laughs) But uh, anyway, uh, you know, so he was very uh, unpopular with the relativists, and they just, uh, they were in control of the government. uh, uh, What what was it? What is today called off-scientific intelligence? It was called something similar to that at the time. Anyway, the the guy just uh, said, oh, Tesla, there's nothing worth classifying here when Tesla died. You know, they looked at his papers. There's nothing here worth classifying. My gosh. They shipped it all up to the Alien Properties custodian in New York where it was stored until 1945. When all the Nazi scientists were brought over here, boy, they rushed up there and grabbed that stuff, and it's never been declassified. And it was about, it would be several truckloads. And they released, uh, the head of the Tesla Museum in Yugoslavia told me that 150,000 pages had been released to them. And uh, at that time, but uh, that would only be a couple of trunks full, you know. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Tesla, uh, his material constituted, you know, a couple of trucks, uh, pretty good-sized trucks, and just huge trunks, and barrels full of stuff. And oh yeah, the guy was four just, different locations. Yeah, he was just prolific. I mean, his his work was just. He he did so much uh, over those uh, over the span of his lifetime. It's just I can't even imagine how much actual literal paper there there must have been. Yeah. Well, most of the stuff they released to the Tesla Museum was historical in nature, so it didn't really, you know. However, knowing the government, they were probably too ignorant to know what was important, and they might have released some valuable stuff to them. I think they probably did. Right, but regardless, there's a lot of stuff that's still locked away. Yeah. And it, we don't know what it is, but we can only speculate what could be so important, you know, aside from the flying saucer, of course. And this is one they don't want us to have ever, because it will wipe out the oil corporations if we ever get this technology. Right. It will wipe out a lot of other business interests and a lot of other corporate interests. 
again, it would invigorate our our society tremendously. Right, it changes. I mean, it changes the paradigm. It changes the paradigm. So yeah, of course, a lot of people worry about. Well, we're really going to leave those primitive people in different parts of the world behind, but that's never really been their concern. So. Right, right. In fact, that's been their agenda to leave them behind. Yeah. Basically. And uh, and actually, in the end, it would probably be to their benefit. Uh, it would stop these countries from warring over their oil, you know. Right. And it would stop terrorism. Uh, actually, vapor carburetors and cars would stop terrorism. <laughs> I think I believe that if they have a national security crisis, it's serious enough to cause wars. I think it's time for the president to order the oil or the automobile companies to install vapor carburetors in all new cars. And if they don't put the carburetors on there, they won't put the cars on the road. And they should order the refiners to remove the the additives from the gasoline that they're putting in there to make the gasoline burn poorly. They're putting oil in the gasoline, which raises the vapor temperature mm-hmm. at least 200 degrees over what it normally is. Gasoline is supposed to vaporize at about 100 degrees. You put a little oil in there, and it raises it to three over 300 degrees makes it harder to vaporize it. And if you vaporize it, you get tremendous gas mileage. And again, again, against the corporate interest and everything else, and it's just, uh, it, it seems it seems that such a, uh, it seems like we're just beating our head against a wall, you know? Well, that's what they want. They can cash in either way. You know, it's like a, a oil companies make out like bandits every time there's any kind of drastic weather. Right, no matter sure. where it gets hot or cold, cold they right. still make out. Right, right. Hurricanes, floods, all that stuff is to their benefit. It just means more fuel is going to get burned, and uh, and people are going to have to buy more of it. So, you know, it's like the war in Iraq. Imagine how much fuel they're burning over there. Oh my gosh, I know. And uh, and it has increased. The oil prices have increased. You know, about twice what they were. Sure, we've ho- been hover- hovering around 50 bucks a barrel now for quite some time, and, and, and I think they're, I, I don't understand how they've held the price of gasoline under $2 a gallon here in, uh, in mid-Missouri where we live, uh, but I can't imagine that uh, if, if they continue with the current uh, sort of game plan that eventually oil is going to get much more expensive. And again, like you say, that might just be right uh, exactly what they're looking for. So. Well, they're suppressing drilling here. There's no drilling going on here to speak of. Nope, and and and, and many of the old wells uh, that, that that used to be active have been shut down. And uh, as you know, I think you were pretty familiar with the oil business and that. It's very difficult to fire those things up again. So there are plenty of oil here. We'll never run out. It'll be obsolete long before we ever even got anywhere close to running out. We haven't even drilled a fraction of our potential in this country. And if we suddenly have a crisis. We're like caught with our pants down. Right. You know, we don't have enough refineries. We are, you know, we don't have enough oil wells producing. We have to drill them. Meanwhile, the big corporations they're buying, they're bringing uh, foreign oil in every day of the uh, year. And uh, in Texas, when I was a kid, or actually in the 1960s, there was something called the eight-day allowable, and they only allowed people in the Texas to pump oil five days a month. And uh, the idea was, oh, let's use all those Arabs oiled up first. Right. And then we'll use ours. Well, that's a phony thing. That We'll never use ours up. We have more. We have as much as the Arabs do. We'll never use it up. And the idea is that the big 
multinational corporations can have a monopoly on all imports, and uh, and that's that's where the the game is played right mm-hmm. there. And they'll buy it from any terrorist that has it, you know. Right, right. Which makes me think that they're actually behind terrorism. Well, there's certainly been uh, certainly been some some reasonably good arguments to uh, uh, to suggest that there's uh, that there were that there's a lot of different things going on right now that we're uh, that we're probably not privy to. So, well, it looks to me like the the fanatic Islamic terrorists are taking over every part of the world they can find to get their hands on oil deposits. That's what that's the that's the places they're interested in. Right, Indonesia. Uh, you know, anywhere else that there's oil. Right, the Middle East, Colombia now. Uh, Caucasus. Nigeria. Caspian Basin. Sudan. Nigeria, anywhere <laughs> there's oil, you'll find Muslims trying to take over the place, right. which is a little suspicious. Right. And it looks like that the oil companies actually, the neocons, George Bush's neocons, actually support the Chechens in Russia. Certainly, yeah. In fact, hey, God, what a strange story that was, too. You know, Putin, I don't know where he's coming from, but he's, he made a couple of complete 180-degree statements back then uh, during the uh, the most recent crisis then. When the, oh, you mean where he said, just bring over Osama bin Laden and give him what he wants? Well, he actually said, on, on one point, he said... Well, that was just sarcasm. Right, but he said, uh, he also made a comment that, that the terrorism that was being carried out in Chechnya was based in Washington and London, yeah. and, and which, is, which, which I believe to be true. But then a week later, he, uh, he came out and endorsed uh, the, uh, uh, the, you know, the president. Uh, this was prior to the election and endorsed President Bush and said, you know, let's, let's, uh, we, we need to keep him in the office. And it was so strange to me. I thought, how could he make those two totally contradictory statements in, in within, is weird. within two weeks' time? In any case. They had to exert some extraordinary pressure on him to do that. Yeah, yeah. Something happened for sure. And uh, uh, he did make the statement that the Chechens were trying to break up the Russia, you know. Right. And, you know, uh, if they got the Caspian, they could cut them off from the south. You know, of course, some people believe, well, this is highly unrealistic, you know, because the Nazis couldn't do it. And, you know, who would have the nerve to try that? But it, it appears that, you know, Russia doesn't have the strength it used to have. All right, Russia doesn't have the strength they used to have. We'll get back to that interview with Bill Lyon in just a moment. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, <clears throat> 89.5 FM, mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's more than radio. It's community radio, and it's KOPN serving Columbia and Harrisburg and Mexico and Tibet's and Bonnets Mill and lots of other places around mid-Missouri. Uh, it's just about 4 o'clock, and uh, you're listening to an interview that I did with William Lyon a couple weeks ago. We're talking about Nikola Tesla and uh, anti-gravity technology and UFOs and uh, lots of different things with Bill. And I'm sitting here in the studio with my friends Casey and Jeff Wheeler. Jeff does a show called Uncommon Light every Monday from, what is it, Jeff, 3 to 5? 3 to 5. And uh, Casey, uh, a new... Uh, programmer here at KOPN, relatively new, is doing uh, the Blues Show on Wednesday nights now from 8 o'clock till 10 o'clock, so, uh, oh, what is it, 10 to midnight, I'm sorry, that's right, uh, the jazz shows aren't from 8 to 10, so anyway, Casey's doing things Wednesday night, uh, 10 to midnight, and so uh, check those guys out, they're in here, what's that, night, oh yeah, Jeff's got another show, that's right, Jeff Jeff took on another uh, time slot, Jeff, I'm going to put your mic on, where you at, mic two? Um, tell us a little bit about Nightlight. Well, it's uh, on Thursdays from uh, uh, midnight to 3 a.m., and it's sort of a longer uh, 
uh, play longer pieces, more uh, experimental electronic and uh, stuff from Robert Fripp and Brian Eno and uh, sort of the, uh, like we were talking about earlier, people on the fringe, you know, people that are that are uh, out there experimenting and, and uh, creating beautiful music. That's one of the things that Jeff does as well, is uh, uh, creates uh, music of his own, and a lot of the stuff that he's playing on that show, I think, is reminiscent of some of the stuff that yeah. you've written yourself. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, so real cool stuff. So, so uh, uh, we'll get back to that interview, but I wanted to say hi to Jeff and Casey. And, um, Thanks. Sure, no problem, Jeff. And uh, listen to those shows on Common Light on Monday afternoons and uh, the blues show on uh, Wednesday. What do you call that blues show, Casey? Blues in the Night, that's right. Wednesday evenings from 10 to 12 and, uh, and Nightlight uh, uh, on Thursday. Yeah, Thursday morning, midnight till 3 a.m., which is Wednesday at midnight, basically. So, Is it Thursday night or is it Thursday morning? Thursday morning. All right, Wednesday night, Thursday morning. So, Okay, um, uh, what else was I going to do here? Oh, let's play a song. This is uh, Radiohead from The Benz. It is called Fake Plastic Trees. Check it out. Radio Orbit, KOPN. The green plastic watering can For a fake Chinese rubber And a fake plastic
Colombia now. Uh, oh, Kansas. Nigeria. Caspian Basin. Sudan. Nigeria. Anywhere <laughs> there's oil, you'll find Muslims trying to take over the place, right. which is a little suspicious. Right. And it looks like that the oil companies actually, the neocons, George Bush's neocons, actually support the Chechens in Russia. Certainly, yeah. In and, fact, hey, God, what a strange story that was, too. You know, Putin, I don't know where he's coming from, but he's, he made a couple of complete 180-degree statements back then uh, during the uh, the most recent crisis then. When the, well, you mean where he said, just bring over Osama bin Laden and give him what he wants? Well, he actually said, uh, on, on one point, he said... Well, that was just sarcasm. Right, but he said, uh, he also made a comment that, that the terrorism that was being carried out in Chechnya was based in Washington and London, yeah. and, and which, is, which, which I believe to be true. But then a week later, he uh, he came out and endorsed uh, the uh, uh, the you know the president. Uh, this was prior to the election, and endorsed President Bush and said, you know, let's let's uh, we we need to keep him in the office. And it was so strange to me. I thought, how could he make those two totally contradictory statements? And within is weird within two weeks' time. In any case, they had to exert some extraordinary pressure on him to do that. Yeah, yeah, something happened for sure. And. Uh, uh, he did make the statement that the Chechens were trying to break up the uh, Russia, you know. Right. And, you know, uh, if they got the Caspian, they could cut them off from the south. You know, of course, some people believe, well, this is highly unrealistic, you know, because the Nazis couldn't do it. And, you know, who would have the nerve to try that? But you know, it appears that, you know, Russia doesn't have the strength it used to have. That's true. And uh, I don't know why, but... Uh, I guess Stalin did so much damage they'll never recover from it, you know. Yep, and I don't think they ever really recovered from the economic uh, the disaster that they had after. Well, they're not uh, going to let them recover right, until right. they own all of their of their resources. Right, That's what I mean, it is. Right, look at what just happened to Yukos, the giant uh, oil uh, uh, conglomerate there in Russia within the last couple months. <laughs> what's the last couple of months? Other, what's happened then? Well, it's I falling think, apart. You mean? Yeah, well, they basically they. Uh, the Soviet equivalent to the IRS went in and then basically shut them down, took them over, said they owed them billions. Well, they were cheating. They weren't paying their taxes, what they call severance taxes here, I think, and they probably have something similar there. Right. They were. And they also had turned over all the, all the stock to a bunch of Israeli businessmen. Huh. So basically Israel was in charge of the largest oil company in Russia, and that didn't sit very right with Putin, you know. And I don't blame him because you can't have your whole... Uh, national resource like that in the hands of foreign, foreign nationals national. like that. I agree, I agree. 
And how would we like it if the Arabs owned all of our oil companies here? Right. Uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be very comforting to know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so that was the sort of thing that, that... Plus, there was a lot of cheating by this Kordakovsky guy. Right, my, my Mikhail uh, Kordakovsky, right? Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I, the way I look at it, they've been trying to rip off the resources of Russia ever since uh, 1991. You know, they've been manipulating, and, and of course, you know, many of them have been involved... Uh, Many of these guys have been involved in trying to rip off these things. AT&T has been trying to get the phone system, you know. And, yeah, it's uh, crazy. I mean, there's just it's just a bunch of gangs, and you get you, yeah. you know you get you got just like all a these bunch of vultures, right? You know, uh, trying to uh, you know take advantage, and uh, and of course the Beers was there when I was there in 1996. They'd been stealing all the diamond deposits in the Emmer River. Of course, that was one of the deals that they were very glad to make. Except I think the Russians had several other deposits just as large, <laughs> but they were desperate and they sold this huge, uh, fabulous diamond diamond uh, uh, deposit in, in along the Amur River to the De Beers. Of course, it would have bankrupted them. Uh, and uh, but you know, Russia has untapped resources. They have uh, the areas yeah, yeah, huge, vast. huge. It's huge. Right, right. It's like one guy told me a a uh, unemployed submarine electrical engineer uh, with the Russian fleet, he told me that he was telling me what it was like when he was, you know, uh, when before the crash, that they would put him on a military jet in Moscow and fly him for nine hours to reach uh, Vladivostok to wow. work on one of the subs. Nine right. hours in a military jet, that's about 600 miles an hour. Yeah, that's amazing how big and, that country and is. So that just gives you some idea how large that country is. Right. But, uh, you know, they have oil deposits. They don't even know where they are, you know. Right. And inevitably, they have them. Right. They have huge mineral deposits in oil and everything. Yeah. And they've got a lot of of wealth that nobody knows about. They keep it in vaults underground, you know. They have a tremendous amount of stuff stored, and nobody knows how much. A lot of gold. They also figured out how to make gold, which is the way they got the World Bank to loan them the money, which they didn't want to loan to them. They said, well, we'll just turn our gold loose on the market here. <laughs> and uh, so that got them what they wanted. But, uh, you know, Russians are very pro-American. A lot of people don't realize that. Right. But when I was there, they all had tried to have something that had red, white, and blue and USA on it. Huh. Old shirts, anything they could get. Right. And uh, they want to be like us. And uh, they're big biggest dream is to have a single story house right <laughs> so they have to live in these uh, stacked shoe right those shoe and then just admit, yeah you know I've, I spent some time in Czechoslovakia uh, both both before the uh, the wall came down and afterwards and uh, the differences were astounding but uh, but in any case some of those old uh, iron curtain towns were just Gray and just so depressing, just to just to oh, see yeah. the you know the architecture and everything. Just it all just gave that same message, you know. Well, they had. Uh, I uh, kept looking for a UFO in Moscow. And was there for two weeks, and finally, the last last night I was there, there was there was one. And it it's strange. There's something about the northern uh, location that you. First of all, the sky was very bright. That's just the uh, northern lights bouncing off the 
North Pole, you see. Right, right. It was in August, and the sky was, they thought it was dark, and boy, that was just like a moonlit night to me. And, uh, you know, I could see quite well in that so-called dark night. And uh, But there was a saucer up there, and it had these strange arching lines coming off of it hmm. that I'd seen in an illustration of somebody had drawn a picture of a UFO hovering over Moscow. And it did produce this effect. It's probably field lines of some sort, you know, right. caused by the gravitational, or I mean, not the gravitational, but the magnetic field okay. lines that were forming around that saucer. And uh, so there it was, and I finally saw one uh, the day before. So day or two before, they'd had a big aeronautical demonstration because it was the fifth anniversary of the failed 1991 coup. So they had a big uh, aeronautical demonstration, planes flying over and all sorts of stuff, you know. All right. Well, okay, let me ask you a question then. We've got we've got all this, we've been talking about oil and resources, and uh, we've got all this global destabilization going on primarily because of uh, the ongoing struggle for resources that seems to be never-ending and, and, and monopolized by a number of large corporations and uh, these sorts of things. So the technology that we've been talking about that Tesla developed, how does that tie in today? In other words, if, if that technology is in play and is operational like we believe that it is, what are they using it for? And, and when we see these things that are flying around, uh, who's benefiting from the technology right now? Uh, or is anybody? I mean, there's the, only, the only industrial or practical use that I know of is, like I say, being used to locate oil deposits. Right. That's being done by a private corporation. And uh, so I assume that they're using this all over the place. This thing can find oil under the ocean and under the land. Okay. And that's one thing. However, uh, I feel like that uh, from my own study of the phenomenon, uh, that the only reason the government has any access to this, because it was originally grabbed by some corporations, uh, primarily Rockefeller-owned corporations at the end of the war, they probably license it to the government with the agreement the government can't disclose it. Hmm. But the main reason the government has it is to use the national security establishment to keep it secret. In other words, as long as the government is working on some new technology relating to these ships, they can keep it classified. And... Uh, so that's what they do. They continually dream up new ideas to test and, and new uh, secret government things to do, you know, particle beam weapons, that sort of thing. Right. And that's why some of the craft we see are different designs now and yeah. different different types. Like you said, well, the some cattle of the... mutilations aren't really mutilations. What they're doing is they're, they're, they're shooting these cattle with particle beam weapons, and then a couple of days later they come back and pick them up and, with UFOs, and then they... They appear to have laboratories on the UFOs for doing this, for extracting the blood and so forth. Mm -hmm. They uh, shoot the cattle up with a with a uh, standard blood coagulant. They put them in a microwave chamber and withdraw all the blood, and it removes the copper from the liver. And that is revealed by the fact that uh, I mean, the fact that they use microwaves on the cattle is revealed by the fact that the copper is missing from the livers when they find them. Uh, interesting. interesting thing is, they can have a perfectly healthy steer that has been checked out, this is like a top breeding steer, it's 
checked out by a, a, a vet one day. Two days later, it's found dead with all its blood missing and full of pneumonia. Hmm. Well, the only way that could happen is if its immune system had been totally wiped out, and that's what a particle beam weapon would do. Destroy all the immune cells, and that's just a way of killing somebody, you see, without evidence, or to make it look like a natural death. Well, the person died of pneumonia. Nobody's safe. Man. Now, a particle beam weapon such as we're talking about, again, is this related to the same technology? Sure. Uh, they, you know, that's about the only kind of weaponry they can put on these ships. Uh, well, it'll explode. Anything with fulminates in it would, would probably explode from being around this thing with all that electrical activity. Right. So they could only use something like electronic weapons and... Uh, you know, so they can they they've been testing these particle beam weapons on the cattle over over a period of years, and then they do blood they count the ions with uh, you know various equipment, and uh, to find out how many positive ions there are and how much evidence there is. I think they probably want to do is what they want to do is they want to make sure there's no telltale evidence that you know would indicate you know that they were somebody was killed. <laughs> You know, that it just looks like a natural death. Right, so these are just experiments to see how yeah. good it really is. And of course, pneumonia is what the AIDS people all die of. <laughs> they never have figured out how they go from HIV to AIDS either. Right. So maybe they get hit by a particle beam weapon. You know, that sounds kind of far out, but their names and addresses are all listed. Well, I'll tell you what, Bill, I have, I have, I'm beyond the point of saying that that's not possible. I, I, uh, a long time ago, as I began my trip down the rabbit hole, <laughs> I, uh, I, I realized that every time I thought, uh, you know, something was uh, as, as, as wild as I can imagine, it actually turned out to be something that was legitimate. Uh, and then I, then I hear something else that blows that out of the water. So it doesn't surprise me, and I, and I certainly uh, don't discount it, you know. Well, I've been watching these UFOs and seeing them since I was, you know, eight years old. And I've seen them up close within 250, 300 feet. I've seen many of them. I've seen, you know, and it's just a matter of looking. Anybody can see them. But you have to you have to train yourself to, to observe the sky. And you see something odd, watch it a little while. You look at it and it's blinking and weird things, and then all of a sudden it's gone. Right. So here's here's what you think is a star watch it long enough you'll see it disappear when it when it takes off they they can move so fast that it looks like they just disappeared and so they use this phenomenon of you know the ability to move so fast they say well it's like fourth dimension you know just came in and out of another dimension you know right they can they can come up and stop so quick instantly that it looks like they just popped out of space amazing and all they're doing is flying really fast and stopping instantly right and again, because of the fields around the craft and stuff, they're able to do that without uh, inertial problems and things like yeah, that. Yeah, well, because, see, when, when this inertial thing works, the way this momentum works is J.J. Uh, Thompson discovered the electron, called it electromagnetic momentum. Uh, what happens is when the momentum's imparted, it's imparted to all the atoms in the ship. So mm -hmm. it all has momentum in one direction. And when that direction is changed, all the atoms are reoriented in another direction so there's no centrifugal force right. the only thing that causes centrifugal force is a body moving one direction and, and, and a force trying to move in another direction exactly right so when, when, when that force is removed and changed in direction there's nothing to change so you know it can turn you know instantly on, on a dime and uh, that's how I knew you know when I saw this ship 
do these 290 degrees. See, if, until I saw that ship, I thought maybe it's some sort of rocket or jet technology. And again, this was just when you were a young man. <laughs> yeah, this is when I was, uh, let's see, I was 1953. I was 15 years old. Okay. And I, I, I was speculating as to how these things were powered. And, uh, of course, after seeing it, I said, well, it's electrical. When I met in, in 1956, when I was in the Air Force, uh, what's his name, Clark, uh, Arthur C. Clark. Oh, Arthur C. Clark. He sure. was lecturing on the Air Force Base at Keesler Air Force Base in December 1956. And, of course, his conclusion was these are natural weather phenomenons and, you know, so forth. And so uh, after his lecture, I went up and I shook his hand and I said, Dr. Clark, I enjoyed your lecture. However, both you and I know if you're a damn liar. <laughs> and flying saucers are man-made electrical machines. I said, I've seen one up big, upright close, Dr. Clark. I, you, you can't fool me. You know, and of course, I assumed, well, you're lecturing for the Air Force, so who is it you're telling these lies for, you know? Right. And of course, he just smiled and shook my hand. <laughs> but uh, it must have astounded him to see a young airman there just uh, blow him right out of the water, you know? I love it, truth. I love it. And, uh, but, you know, who knows what kind of misery that might have called, called, caused me later, you know? Right. Uh, but it already caused me enough misery, you know, at that point. But uh, uh, but that was that was a very very funny uh, incident that Clark just happened to be there and I just happened to be a guy who'd seen one up close and uh, and I knew they were electrical and uh, he was kind of amazed but he wasn't angered at all right so you know if, if I'd insulted him or something he would have been angry sure you know? sure so he was just smiling and kind of admired me you know <laughs> right, right. so he knew the truth right. Well, you know, you're not the first person I've heard similar stories to like that where uh, where, where people have, you know, put uh, certain individuals on the spot, so to speak, and have gotten a similar reaction, just a little smile, a sly smile maybe, a little giggle, and but, but really no, kind of like we were talking about earlier in the show, uh, no real confirmation, but certainly no denial either. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. All right, well, okay, speaking of that, so there's... So, okay, let's talk about, um, certainly people are going to ask, okay, if this is true, that there's this technology out there that is uh, astounding and, and uh, been available to us for quite some time, and it's in the closet, and it would allow us to really change things fundamentally on planet Earth, how is it possible that, there, that, that it's uh, remained in secret for so long, and... Um, how is it that it remains there now, and, and, and what, can we, what can we do to pull it out of the closet? Well, very simply, the oil companies don't want us to have it. Okay. That's primary, and a lot of other corporations, and even the government, because people will be flying across the borders at will. And, and lots of governments, dollars. but let, let's, let me backtrack real fast. How many governments, how many organizations, uh, you know, you hear people talk about uh, uh, organized crime being just as powerful as governments in some cases these days. How many people really are aware of this technology or, or, or have it? Well, the biggest organized crime is government. And, oh, and, good and point. They, Very good point. They dwarf what we call organized crime, which actually works for the government now. Yeah, they both, they're, they're in cahoots, certainly. Yeah, okay. they, they got them working for them. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, but here's a way to keep it shut up. They keep videotapes on file of everybody doing something illegal. They get them involved in sex with children, you name it. Oh, yeah. You know, underage girls, whatever. Boys, you name it. Anything that will work to coerce them. To compromise them. You know, don't ask, don't tell. Why do you think they didn't want to make that legal? 
because they want to be able to coerce people. If it was legal, it wouldn't be coercive anymore. Okay. So they don't want the military to be, even though the military is just rampant with homosexuality. I mean, believe me, there's a lot of it. Uh, however, it is. Uh, I mean, what better place for a homosexual? Sure. I mean, uh, I mean, it's common, sort of common sense. You want to go where a lot of guys are. There's your best bet, and you get yeah, paid for it. So the Navy's notorious for it. Sure. But the outfit I was in, the it was so bad that Sergeant Major kept trying to pick me up, <laughs> and the the wing commander would would cruise me, you know, <laughs> when we were at, when we were in inspection, oh you my know, gosh. and it was just uh, pretty creepy, you oh, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it was you know, so that this is a way they they want to be able to coerce people, and this is a way they shut them up. The mafia used to do that years ago. I, I knew of a place where they did this. They got the congressmen and our legislators, state state uh, senators and state uh, legislators in this outfit and got them all on videotape, and then they paid them a thousand dollars for their for their vote and just kept this tape on file. And uh, they all did as they were told, and they were well paid for it, of course. Right. But see, the CIA uses the same technology to keep people shut up. Oh, you know, I mean, it's it if people really knew the level of uh, as you say, coercion number one, but uh, but just the level of depravity too that 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 these guys are willing to go to and ha and have gone to for so many years now, and it's just uh, it's it's just something that uh, it's just it's very frustrating, but at the same time it just sickens me, and I'm really ready for it to end. You know, well, I'm just amazed that the real truth didn't come out during the election pro during the this last election. Concerning, uh, you know, people like Dick Cheney oh my and his uh, connections with the MK Ultra, uh, you know, and what he did, you know, in that uh, under that little thing, and I wonder how much of that's going on under Bush administration. Yeah, you wonder. I mean, Rumsfeld uh, included. He, him, and Cheney been in cahoots for a long time, and I don't know if you know, if you know the Eric Olson story or you know Frank Olson. Uh, oh yeah. But uh, you know, those guys were. Yeah, that was given the LSD. And yeah, yeah. Flew out the window. Right. Well, his son is uh, is a. Uh, a I don't know if I should call him a friend, but he's certainly a uh, um, an associate of mine, and and uh, that, that that's an amazing story as well. And Cheney and uh, Cheney and Rumsfeld were both were basically the two guys that were behind continuing that cover up during the during the Ford administration, actually. Wow. So, in any case, it, like like we say, these guys they, they they've been doing it for a long time, and their and their hands are in lots of different pies, you know. Yeah. Well, you know they have so many, uh, I say, friends in high places. You know, and uh, and they control them all. They've got them on tape. You know, right, right. They've got them all. You know, it's all you know, whatever it takes. You know, mm -hmm. everybody's got a little area that they can be controlled if they can be compromised. If they can find way. it. Yep, everyone's got a little dark side or a secret, and yep. uh, and and that's very powerful uh, to a lot of people for sure. Yeah, you know, they you know if they try to pull that on you, they try to set you up. You know, they're trying to set you up. You know, you must be saying something that must be true. Right, right. You know, right. And, uh, if you've ever had the experience, uh, I've had it tried on me. I knew, you know, always aware of what's going on. You know, mm -hmm. but uh, they tried to set me up a couple of times. And I interesting. Said, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, being aware of it, I guess, is a big is is a is a big step in being able to avoid it. I guess knowing that they, that that these things are happening and that they really do uh, try to compromise people and blackmail and all these other things. Yeah. So. 
All right, uh, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's about 4.24 in the a.m. on December 5th, and uh, you're listening to an interview that I did a couple weeks ago with uh, Mr. Bill Line, and we are talking about Tesla and UFOs and uh, anti-gravity technology and government uh, conspiracy and lots of different things. We'll be back in just a minute, and... Uh, Listen to the last segment of that interview. Stick around. In the meantime, this is Natalie Merchant from Tiger Lily. This is called the San Andreas Fault.
Okay, well, um, one more thing. I remember in uh, one of our email conversations, you mentioned that there was a meeting in 1955 in Switzerland that yeah. sort of uh, dealt with all this stuff. What was that about? Well, it was basically the major, the major nations, you know, Western European, United States, Russia, and they all got together and agreed to keep their keep their UFO reports secret. So that was, see, Project Blue Book was part of that agreement. It was just a way to get all the reports and keep them and, and put them away in a file. In other words, people would report their signings to this outfit, and then they never saw them again. That was right, the right, right. So it was a way to consolidate everything and then sure. just put it away. And uh, that was a way to sack, uh, suck up all of the uh, violent witnesses, you see. Nobody ever got the truth, because once... Project Blue Book got a hold of it and never was uh, made available to the public. It's secret. still is secret. So you could get all the information that people observed. Right. You know, what the behavior of these ships were and so forth, where they were seen and, you know, so forth and so on. So it was just a way to conceal this information. And what it means is the major nations of the world have this technology, so they're not hiding it from each other. They're hiding it from us, the people. And, uh, the technology is not that complicated. Tesla was able to build these things in the 1914, you know, and, and technology is available at that time, which was just basically a bunch of uh, induction coils and so forth and so on. Right. So in, you know, alternators and so forth. So there wasn't any magic about it. It was just electronics, primitive electronics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, amazing, amazing what they, well, I, I mean, I should say, I wonder what they've really done uh, you know, to advance the technology, or maybe not to advance the technology so much, but implement the technology in new and cool ways and stuff. Oh you know? yeah, I mean it's got to be amazing. Well, what they've doing. got you know they've gone way beyond. I I would sure like to see the the control console of one of those things. Now, what about uh, and this may or may not be the right time to go to go to ask you this, but what about outside of uh, Earth's atmosphere? Can they travel in space? I don't know. Uh, now Tesla referred to these um, to these forces that he used this this beam that would shoot these discharges. He referred to that as a veritable rope of air. Now whether he meant literally that it was air, or where there was just a term he used for an ignorant public because they, nobody knew anything about electronics in those days. Right. Uh, so he might have just used that term. It might have been more like a veritable rope in space. He said you could make these ropes and pull the ship wherever you wanted, hold it perfectly still with the gyro stabilizers, be perfectly stationary, wouldn't be affected by the winds, and you could pull it right, left, up, down, any direction you wanted to with these veritable ropes, which were created uh, electronically. And they could extend pretty much into infinity. Oh, yeah. The, the ship I saw over Vandenberg in 19, uh, let's see, 2000, uh, 2000 or 2001, I'm losing track a little bit, I was invited out there, and I, we, we, with an infrared scope, we observed the ship hovering over Vandenberg, and, and the irritable rope above that ship extended for thousands of feet above it. And it's something that you can physically observe? With the infrared scope. Ah. With the naked eye, it wasn't visible. Uh-huh. So you'd see the heat plume, see, with the infrared scope, and my friend had a very good one. Most of them aren't good for, for a few hundred yards, but this one was good for miles. It was oh, a very good one. Wow, incredible. And you could... You could fine-tune the focus, and you could see the hairy little uh, Tesla discharges along that rope. Amazing. Little fine filaments. And, uh, you know, and, and all his friends were there, and we all observed it. My friend, uh, Tim, and, and all of his friends were there, and we observed this thing. And uh, uh, 
uh, this uh, whole thing was, uh, you know, uh, kind of amazing for all these people, uh, including Tim's wife, who happened to be the daughter of uh, Kelly Johnson, the guy that ran Skunk Works for Howard Fuse. She didn't know anything about it. I mean, uh, Kelly Johnson apparently never said a word. They said he was totally, totally silent about his work. Right, and Skunk Works had to have a lot of that stuff going on there. Oh, yeah. And so all these people were in that area. We looked over to Oxnard, and and they were having... uh, uh, practice uh, UFO dogfights over there in a big cloud bank. Are you kidding me? And they were just busting around, and they'd shoot out of the cloud and then back in, out and in, out and in. It was just flying all over the place inside that cloud bank. It was funny. Incredible. And they'd never noticed this stuff. It was right around them, and they'd never paid any attention. And uh, it's amazing, but people are kind of brainwashed not to pay attention to anything above the horizon. Yeah, it's a perception thing, uh, and sometimes uh, you know things enter their field of vision, and if their if their mind brain system isn't in a place where that makes sense, they literally won't see it. Yeah, well, it's like I, I compared it, you know, as I told you the other day, uh, that this is like the Australian Aborigines. They proved that they couldn't see any, see beyond as far as they could throw that stick, that throw stick. Right. Because they didn't have any reason to look beyond that. So they didn't notice anything outside of that. Yeah, it's actually really interesting when you start looking at the brain and perception and vision and hearing and all the senses about how, how the brain really processes that information. You find out that it really is subjective and it's really not this uh, objective thing. It really is uh, something that can be changed well, if you're internally. Not looking for something, you're certainly not going to see it. No question about that, Bill. <laughs> Train your mind, you know. Anybody that works in a field where they have to identify things, like a needle in a haystack type of thing. Right. Pretty soon to get to where you can spot it easily. You know, I once worked with a guy in printing business, and um, I found out later that figured out later that he was the great the guy they called the great imposter, hmm. and he was being protected by this publisher that I worked for because he'd gotten caught uh, running. Uh, he was running Texas prison system at, at the time, and he had done an. He'd done his own appendectomy when he was in the Navy. He also did some very difficult surgical operations. Mercy. But he was working as a printer and a typesetter, and he was an incredible guy. He walked. He could walk by, walk by a table in which a a type uh, galley was laying, you know, with typeset in it. He would walk by this thing looking at it from the top, not from the bottom. In other words, he's seeing it upside down. Right, right, right. And he could reach out and put his finger on a type typo error. No kidding. And uh, just walking by the table casually. Just spot it anyway. Typo upside down and backwards. Amazing. So he was quite an incredible guy. Just a young guy, you know. And uh, But he had done a lot of these things. He ran the Texas prison system and improved it tremendously before he was exposed. And, uh, but he was quite an, some kind of genius. Exposed as? As being a phony. Somebody, uh, an impo- uh, imposter. Ah. You know, that's the only thing they could ever throw at him. They never, you know, he ran a hospital out in West Texas, and he had to leave, disappeared. Of course, his people that respected him helped him get away, you know. Right. And uh, because he didn't, he was excellent. He was just a great con man. Yeah, yeah. I think they made a movie a couple yeah, years ago about, about a guy Tony like Curtis. That. They had the movie with Tony Curtis called The Great Imposter. Yeah. And I think they finally traced him to Australia. Was where he originated. <laughs> uh, can't remember right now what his real name was, but it was it was uh, he was an interesting character. All right. So look. All right. We've been um, 
so we know that uh, we've been talking about how the fact that this stuff has been hidden and uh, kept in the closet. And in fact, in, in fact, it's interesting because your books, and we might as well mention this now. Uh, let's uh, let's give out the information. And and uh, Bill, I'll put this at the beginning of the program as well. Um, but uh, if you have information on how your books can be uh, acquired, maybe we can give that out now, Bill. All right. Um, you can get my books. Uh, by, you can order them directly from me. Uh, Bill Line, Cerro Circle, that's C-E-R-R-O, Circle, 31-B, Laney, New Mexico, 87540. Or you can also look up my website and get all the information from that, and that's Pentagon Space Aliens. If you, if you do a search for Pentagon Space Aliens, my website will come up. Okay. And, uh, it's it's basically on tripod. All right, no problem. And also, uh, for anybody out there listening, if you didn't catch that address for Bill, just send me an email like you always do, and uh, I'll forward the information to you. Okay. Great, thanks. Okay. Um, uh, the word occult uh, is included in a couple of titles of your books, and people uh, don't really have typically a clear understanding of what that means. They usually think about something satanic. Or, that was uh, one of my dual purposes in using that to show how the word really, what it really meant. Okay, let's talk about that a little bit. It's thrown around a lot, awful lot loosely without knowing what it means. Right, like if right. somebody calls somebody a cult, uh, they, uh, basically what they're saying is there are secret teachings. Uh, that's what the meaning of cult really means. A cult means hidden. Right, it means and, hidden. Uh, so anything that's a cult has to have secret teachings. If it doesn't have secret teachings, if it's all out in the open, then it's not a cult. <laughs> right. And uh, but the ether physics is secret. You know, government's keeping it secret, and they're using this stuff. But meanwhile, they're lying to the public. You know, uh, putting out misinformation by basically just spreading conventional physics. Right. Which basically is a big lie. And when you get right down to it, the scientists at Los Alamos, none of them use relativism that I've ever talked to. I've asked a number of them. They don't have any use for relativist theory. They, they don't use it. There's nothing in there they could do anything with. They do technical stuff. They build weapons. And there's no use for relativism. Right. I knew a guy that got a Ph.D. in relativity theory, and he couldn't get a job. Yeah, what good is it? And, uh, you know, because really it's just archaic. It's, it's just something they can put into magazines and infatuate the public. With, with pop physics, you know, which really isn't useful for anything because it's it's basically false. Yet they perpetuate it in all the institutions. In other words, there are so, you know, I can't tell you how many guys will just debate me till they're blue in the face. And these are technical scientific personnel, you know, that, oh, yeah. that, 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 that just will have nothing of this and, and just... Uh, um, it, 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 it just throws them into an absolute fit, actually, guys sometimes. fell in love with math. Uh-huh. But they forgot about reason. <laughs> and math can be deceptive. Especially if it's applied to a false theory. It can just lead you around in circles and you think you're really computing something, but you're not. Hmm. And because there are false equations in there, they're just it's subject to any as much falsehood as anything. Right. Something called Lorentz transformation. It has a false uh part of the equation that will will, will Basically, excess uh, will suck up the excess or, or spew out uh, the shortages to make it come out the way uh, the theory says it's supposed to come out, <laughs> like an accordion. Right. Squeeze the data. It's built into the theory. One guy did an ex 
tried that using a substituted the speed of sound for the speed of light, and it came out the same. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, there's some good science for you. So, yeah, and they yeah. talk about pseudoscience and stuff. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Okay. Um, Bill, let me ask you another question then. There is a lot of misinformation, disinformation out there. A lot of, uh, like you say, one of the, in fact, the main, uh, the main source of, of misinformation is simply the, uh, the current scientific paradigm itself, like you say. Um, but there are also all kinds of other guys that are talking about sort of similar uh, things related, but also maybe not quite right. I've run across a couple, and I'd I'd like you to give us a couple examples. There's one guy in particular um, uh, that we talked about earlier, Tom Bearden, who uh, talks about these scalar technologies and this sort of thing. I know there's a guy named who goes by Rose Sigma, who wrote a a book about ether physics, but I think he was somehow connected to the Germans. And uh, he was his real name is uh, Rolf Schifranke, and he was a friend of von Braun's. And von Braun told him to write that book, just and gave him the theory that it was supposed to be based on. In other words, he just basically told him what false theory to write. Uh huh. And uh, and Bearden, he talks about relativism and Tesla as if they were the same. And Tesla was totally unrelativistic, and it was totally anathema to him. You can't mix the two, and the scalar potential is 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 static. It is not a. You cannot have a scalar wave. It's simply potential. Yeah, it's, it's strictly potential. And Tesla only mentioned a couple of times and didn't talk about scalar waves. He talks about he talks about uh, you know basically a longitudinal waves because he believed that's a way that radio waves really transmitted. He didn't say that there's two different kinds of waves. He just said that's the way all waves are transmitted, is longitudinally. Okay. And he just basically said that, uh, he, what he said was electromagnetic waves are waves in, or, or uh, sound waves in the ether, like sound waves in the ether. You know, it's basically hitting these little particles, and the particles are carrying the energy, you see. Right, right, right. Carrying the force, rather. And they're just bobbling back and forth. <laughs> Nothing's traveling from A to B except the force, and it's right. being carried by these particles. But when you shoot a beam of light, the light doesn't actually go from point A to point B. What goes from point A to point B is the the electromagnetic wave, which is is transmitted through the ether, particle by particle. You see, and then it radi- when it strikes an object, it, that that object then uh, fluoresces at its natural frequency. You know, the particles that make up the paint or whatever it's made of right, show a right. certain color, but it's not actually the color of the light. Right. You know, it's it's you know people have the wrong idea, and uh, the idea that a light is particle is a false idea that started well, back in the time of Newton, and and basically was uh, Boscovich too the, the idea that article that light was a corpuscle, mm-hmm. a little particle, right? And, uh, but it's actually electromagnetic wave, which is what uh, that was uh, Faraday's theory. Okay. Light was an electromagnetic wave, and yeah. that's where he par- parted with the relativists. He almost got sucked into relativism, and, uh, but he parted with them when he came up with electromagnetic theory of light and recanted because he was getting he was getting polluted with these relativist ideas, mm-hmm. Newtonian ideas. And uh, the one thing that Tesla and the relativists agreed on was there's no force at a distance that gravity does not affect an object. There is not a force acting on a body at a distance. Okay. Uh, what The body is behaving in a certain way that makes it appear 
increase the apparent effect that there's an attractive force, but there really isn't. Yeah, gravity is one of those things that still, quite frankly, in the conventional physics, hasn't been very. It has not been explained. They talk about gravity, but really, what they're talking about is the is is the effect. They don't really know what the cause. Well, Tesla's dynamic theory of gravity supposedly explained it, but it's never been it's never been declassified. Right, right. And again, I published. yeah, again, I'm talking about the conventional guys. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, incredible. All right, another question for you. Um, there was a guy whose name was Wilhelm Reich, who was sort of a contemporary of Tesla's, and uh, I've read uh, actually some of his uh, some of his writings have nothing to do with energy and the sort. He was an incredible writer. But uh, what do you make of uh, Wilhelm Reich and the work that he was doing, Bill? Well, I think Reich was, you know, he was basically was a psychiatrist. And he put his finger on some things. He said, you know, the cause of fascism is sexual repression. Which I think if you look at Bush and his crowd, you can see that's probably true. You can make an like, argument for sure. Yeah, they, they sure look like they're suppressed, you know. Uh, the, uh, you know, Reich, I think, had some interesting ideas. Uh, he got into this orgone thing, which right. was probably accumulating some sort of uh, electrostatic energy of some sort. I don't think he really fully... Understood. understood what it was, right. and when he started photographing UFOs over his laboratory in Rangeley, Maine, at night, we using time lapse photography. He took these photographs to the government, and he, you know, he he didn't realize he was sticking his head in the meat grinder because <laughs> they didn't like him doing that. Right. I've seen those photographs, and they show the saucers meandering around. You know, light, uh, you know, uh, light discs that are meandering around while the stars move across behind them. And who knows, they might have been radiating him because he was picking up radiation at his laboratory and they might have been subjecting him to radiant beams, you know, poisoning the environment. But, uh, uh, you know, he got into some trouble with them. He, I saw a film uh, in the 50s, early 50s, where he, he had a film guy uh, operating a camera behind him and he was operating the uh, Cloudbuster okay. to eradicate a cloud. This was up in Rangeley, Maine. It was a body of water in the front. Uh, shallow, you know, body of water in front with a bunch of trees all around and and he was eradicating this dirty cloud with the cloud buster and he erased the cloud and inside the cloud was a UFO Are and it looked kidding? like the one that I saw in 53 uh, it was the only one I've seen a picture of that looked like the one I've seen and this this saucer was grounded by this cloud buster so it started going down it started precessing while and started going down Extraordinary. and they all took off running over there where the thing went down and uh, the cameraman who was operating a camera probably 16 millimeter I think he knocked the camera over and that was the end of the film but I actually saw that in a movie theater amazing and you would yeah. never see that in a movie theater today they would never let it be shown and, uh, and it makes perfect sense that they somehow uh, inter- interrupted the field or something and caused that thing to destabilize. So. Yeah. Well, it was probably grounding it. Right. <laughs> it was an ion, basically an ion, a, generator. ion beam or something that they were creating with this, you know. It was basically a cloud buster. It had this sliding tube, you know, that you could adjust, you know, by pushing it back and forth mm-hmm. to get different uh, a different uh, wavelength or something. Right, right, right. And I think probably was doing was tuning in and inductively grounding that saucer. Right. That makes sense. And it drained it and then down it came. I'll be darned. And uh, interfered with the field and away she went. And that's probably what got him in trouble. Huh. Yeah, and he ended up uh, in deep trouble. He never really came yeah, out. Yeah, they threw him in the, in, the, in the hospital and accused him of sex crimes and all kinds of yep, stuff. Yeah, pretty much finished him, so... 
Amazing, amazing stuff. Yep. All right, Bill. Well, look, uh, we've uh, about come to the end of our time here. We've got just a few minutes left. I think we'll give out the information again about your books and uh, I'll let you add any sort of closing uh, uh, thoughts that you might have. We've got, uh, like we got a few minutes left, so don't, uh, don't feel rushed. But uh, how do we, what, what, what do we do with this information? How do we... Um, uh, how do we proceed? Uh, is there is there anything that we can do other than just knowing about it uh, to uh, to maybe I don't know. Uh, you well, might... I think one of the things everyone ought to do is demand that the government come clean on it and and release the technology for public use. You know, uh, you know that public use uh, places that for one year, uh, even secret uh, public use, uh, makes that public domain that anybody could use it and uh, it becomes public domain uh, I, I believe that you know if people buy my books and study the technology they can build their own right it seems like like we're saying the technology was operational a hundred years ago almost and yep. there's no reason why it, even and even on a small scale why uh, why you wouldn't be able to pull it off yourself if well somebody... I thought when I first started writing these books I could create a craze with teenagers building these things out of old car parts and stuff and uh and uh, start something like skateboarding only with, uh, you know, teenage-built UFOs. Right, that sounds you know, great. Hot rods. I love it. And uh, and that would just, you know, if you get enough people doing something, then basically there's safety in numbers. What can the government do? Well, and I tell you, I think you got the right idea because the kids are the ones that will take something like that, and uh, and they won't, uh, they're, they're not doing it for any reason other than just because it's damn fun. Yeah, <laughs> it would be, you know, a tremendous rush, you know have one of these little things right and, uh, i could just envision what it'd be like you know to walk out in my driveway and open up the hull and get in and turn on my turbine zip <laughs> off yeah know? wouldn't it be something you know and i tell you what it sounds like uh, at least for the last few generations that that might be our birthright so i think that it's something that we shouldn't laugh off as uh, uh even if we believe uh the stuff that we're hearing and that we're talking about we shouldn't laugh it off as something that there's nothing we can do about it. it's something well, that can it's change like the four minute mile as long as you believe nobody can do it it won't happen that's exactly the right they, people realize it can be done and they'll be doing it Right and left. Right. So, uh, so the people who are fortunate enough to have heard this program and got to hear the uh, uh, incredible information that Mr. Bill Line has been sharing with us for the last couple hours, uh, um, use it to your advantage and do something with it. Share it with other people and uh, uh, get a hold of uh, uh, officials, whoever they might be, and whatever. Uh, particular uh, area of public service they might be in. Let them know that you know about this stuff and that we uh, and that it's time. Gosh, if, there w- if, if, if it's not time now, Bill, I don't know when is. Well, you've got to defeat the false propaganda by asserting that these things are exclusively man-made, that the alien propaganda is put out by the government initially. Well, okay, so that's, a, that's one other question that we probably should address. There are those that will say, well, why, why are they not mutually ex- exclusive? Why could not the, uh, the uh, man-made UFOs based on the Tesla technology be... Uh, real, and why couldn't the alien technology or the alien visitors also be real? I could, I could go for that if somebody could show me just one little iota of real evidence. You know, right. it's, there's a lot of talk, but no evidence. I think if something like that was happening, we would have some evidence, wouldn't we? At least one little stitch of it. Well, we should certainly. And I've never seen any. Uh, and plus, the distances are so great. You know, to the nearest habitable planet. 
that it just, uh, you know, they've invented all, all of these things like wormholes. They've been invented to get around this problem mm-hmm. so that they can lie to you. <laughs> that's all that's, that's to, is to make you think there's some feasibility to this, that they could, you know, somehow come through a wormhole and come from light years away. Right. You know, well, that's just science fiction gibberish. It's not even good science fiction. And, uh, and you know, show me some evidence. I'm not from Missouri, but I still have to be shown. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a good way to good, good way to finish things up because I agree, and that's what this program is about. We put a lot of information out there, um, and uh, and I encourage people to listen with an open mind and with uh, an open heart, and then do their own uh, uh, research and do their own. Uh, soul searching and find out what they think is uh, uh, makes sense and what doesn't. And and if the Missouri Senator Thomas Hart Benton said, "Gentlemen, the facts. Give me the facts." Give me the facts. <laughs> All right. Well, Bill, we've appreciated the facts that you've been sharing with us tonight, and uh, we'll have to uh, we'll have to plan to do this again sometime in the future. I'm sure there's plenty more that we could talk about. So uh, we'll do that. I'll get in touch with you at a later date. But uh, thank you very much for the time that you spent with us tonight. We really appreciate it, me and all my listeners. And uh, it's a, uh, a great bunch of information that you're sharing with, uh, with the world. And let's uh, make sure people know how to get it one more time. Uh, my, my guest has been Mr. William Lyne. And Will, William has a number of books out there, uh, a couple of the most recent ones being uh, Occult Ether Physics and the occult science dictatorship uh, both of those are available from his website which you can get uh, um, go to any of your search engines and put in William Line L-Y-N-E or you can put on Pentagon uh, put in Pentagon Space Aliens that'll also get you to him but I've actually been messing around a little bit here while we've been talking and uh, just put in William Line and you'll get plenty of uh, links right up to Bill so um, uh, so that's where we are. And, Bill, once again, thanks very much for being on the program here, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again. All right. Enjoyed it. I'd like to be on again. Yeah, we'll definitely do it again, and we'll set it up. Yeah, we'll do it sometime after the beginning of the year, and I uh, hope you enjoy the holiday time here that's coming up, and uh, and let's uh, let's keep uh, keep it up. We're doing you're doing great work, and I really appreciate it. So yeah, I hope I get some feedback on this. It should be interesting. Yeah, well, um, like I said, uh, we'll, we'll um, once this uh, once this program airs within a day or two, I'll have it up on the web, and uh, we can uh, we can point some people over there to listen to it as well, and it'll be up there uh, for uh, for the duration, so people can listen to it from anywhere on the planet uh, at any time they like so all right thank you very much all right uh this is mike talking to you live now it's just about five minutes till 5 a.m on december 5th sunday morning that was uh, in its entirety the uh interview that i did with bill line a few weeks ago and we talked about tesla and ufos and anti-gravity technology and a bunch of other other stuff in between i hope you enjoyed it and uh gonna Sign off here. you got Carol Greenspan showing up in just a few minutes here to do Jewish Spectrum for you, as always, 5 to 7 on Sunday mornings, playing some lovely music for you. And uh, uh, stick around for her. And in the meantime, uh, I'll leave you with something from uh, a new composition, actually, from my friend Jeff Wheeler, who was on the air with us a few, uh, maybe an hour ago or so. But anyway, uh, Jeff uh, wrote a real nice piece of piano music a couple of days ago, and I think it is as yet untitled, but we're going to listen to that now and... Uh, send the show off with that. So thanks to Jeff for that music and uh, catch his show Uncommon Light on uh, Monday afternoons and also uh, Night Light on Thursday morning. So, uh, okay, this is Mike, uh, Radio Orbit. Thanks for listening. Next week uh, we'll probably have Kent Stedman on live uh, from Seattle with Scott Stevens uh, talking about weather manipulation. If not, uh, 
uh, we'll do something else. In any case, uh, enjoyed it. Have a great uh, week, and take care of yourselves. Talk to you next week. This is Mike, Radio Orbit, KOPN. By the way, this is a world premiere on KOPN 89.5. Jeff Wheeler.